0: to Pinder and Steinberg, Calgary Sports Talk in the afternoon. Sportsnet
1: 960, The Fan.
0: Well, I got to say yesterday was uh, pretty darn fun. It was cool making everything about Jerome McGinley yesterday. That was uh, that was a nice diversion day. That was a, a good day to just talk sports, reminisce. It was pretty cool having the chance to interview him, I won't lie. That was uh, one of those ones where... First of all, I didn't have enough time to be nervous because it it came together so quickly, but we weren't sure whether it was going to happen. It's so cool that it did, but definitely as as that interview went along, you're like, okay, yeah, definitely some nerves, but the guy is humble and gracious as ever, and just hearing Jerome talk takes you back to when he played here, the heyday of Jerome and the Flames when, for a good five-year span from... You know, about 04 to 09. Unfortunately, there was a year in there where they didn't play. But for a good five-year span, the Flames were looked at as a team that had Stanley Cup aspirations. And though they only got close the one time, they still had those aspirations. So it was a really fun day yesterday. I'm glad that we uh, got to talk about Jerome and his election to the Hockey Hall of Fame all day. Lots of discussion surrounding yesterday's Hockey Hall of Fame. Lots of frustration from Flames fans as Theo Fleury does not get in once again. But here's the one thing I won't do. I'm not going to cut down anyone who's in there. You know, the, the people who went in yesterday on top of Jerome, Kim St-Pierre, One of the most decorated goaltenders in Canadian hockey history. Doug Wilson, a great defenseman, more than 800 points during his NHL career. Kevin Lowe won six Stanley Cups and was a rock on that Oilers back end. Marion Hossa, one of the best two-way forwards the game's ever seen. Ken Holland's accomplishments, specifically what he did in Detroit, absolutely worthy of being a builder. But, logo, it is a, a strange Hall of Fame. Like, it's it's... It's strange how they decide who goes in and the ones that are getting a lot of discussion yesterday, Daniel Alfredson, Alexander McGillney, Theo Fleury. It's it's less about who's in the hall of fame for me, because I'm never gonna sit here and say that somebody doesn't belong there or try to diminish an incredible day for an individual. That's just not what I wanna do. But it is it is hard sometimes or difficult sometimes to wrap your head around what the criteria is and what deems one person eligible and the other person not eligible, or one person worthy and the other person not worthy. And, and because the Hall of Fame has a very secretive policy, and because they're not overly transparent about the reasons why people do and do not get in, it, it, it certainly it lends itself to frustration, and it lends itself to discussions like the one that we're having right now
1: well especially when you discuss it and we go through it and we we don't ever get a clear answer to why or why not someone goes into the Hall of Fame and it's it, i think that's what lends to the frustration is just never never having a clear answer when i think you can make a case for so many guys and that's you know what Ottawa fans are feeling today from Daniel Alfredson not being there again, and Theo Fleury has been a long-time one for Flames fans here, is the not knowing, right? And and even if they do get in 10, 15 years down the road, why didn't they get in in year four? Why didn't they get in in year 12? All of that sort of stuff will be stuff that we, unless someone wants to come out and write a book about it and release some secrets that I don't think they can legally because of the disclosure agreement that they sign we'll just never know. So I, I think it lends itself to frustration, but you're right. Everybody that gets in certainly has a case to be made for them, and I don't think it's easy to get in by any means. I think you have to have excelled at, at some point or another. So I, I'm with you. There's no reason to tear down those who got in, but I still think it's fair to question who didn't get in.
2: Yeah, and,
0: and I mean, I, it's – look, we've had the the, the Twitter conversations yesterday – about who didn't get in, were, were very interesting. You know, we, we've had the one routinely about Theo Fleury this week, but it wasn't just that. I mean, the, the goal-scoring numbers and the point totals of Alexander McGillney are pretty darn impressive, and there's probably something to be said about his candidacy and his worthiness of being in there. Um, I think that there is definitely a case to be made about Daniel Alfredson and the longevity of his career and what he meant. Like, look, he, he meant... The world to the Ottawa Senators, and mm-hmm. he—I know that he finished his career in Detroit. I know, but Daniel Alfredson is the most important player to ever wear a Senators jersey, you know, and and that's taking into account a guy like uh, Eric Carlson and how important he was uh, as a member of the Ottawa Senators. So, and and I'm not saying that these guys are never going to get in. I think McGillney will be a Hall of Famer. I think Alfredson will be a Hall of Famer. Hell. I do think one day, 24 years it took Doug Wilson to get into the Hall of Fame. After finishing his career and waiting the three years, 24 different runs and different votes finally got him in. So do I think Theo Fleury will eventually get in? Yeah, I do. Do I think that McGilney and Alfredson will eventually get in? Yeah, for sure. But if the Hall of Fame is upset about talk shows and social media being frustrated with who does or does not get in, I think just the the way that they go about their business is the reason why. And, and the fact that it is so secretive and there is next to no transparency and it's all done over uh, with with a shroud of mystery. That's what opens them up to these conversations. That's what opens them up to some of the criticisms that they face on a yearly basis. So I, I, I love the, I like, I, I love the, the class of 2020. I think that, it was cool to see Kim St. Pierre get in. Of course, Aginla getting in is amazing for people in this city, and he's clearly a first-ballot guy. I, I really don't think enough people appreciate how good Marion Hosa was and how important he was to what? Three straight trips to a Stanley Cup final, mm-hmm. finally winning one and then winning two more after that. Like this, this guy, This guy was an elite two-way forward. And one of the best two-way wingers we've ever seen in the game. So I don't think that, that is appreciated enough. And, and you know, somebody texts in and says, um, whoever said, let's go watch Kevin Lowe, they all say, let's go see Theron Fleury. Yeah, I mean, Kevin Lowe was not the sexiest of players. We weren't talking about a, that was not He was not Paul Coffey on that Oilers Blue Line, but he still played an important role and still won six Stanley Cups and, and still was... Uh, a very important defensive rock for that team. I'm not saying he shouldn't be a Hall of Famer. I think anybody who gets in deserves to be in, and that, that includes some of the controversial decisions they made in the early 2000s. But it's more, it's more the, okay, so this guy's in, but this guy's not in, and how come it took this guy so long to get in? It just, that's, that's the difficult part to wrap your head around. That's the difficult part to, to reconcile when you're talking
1: about this. Yeah, look, nobody, I don't even think anybody on the Hall of Fame committee would sit there and and honestly, you know, if you were, if a true sermon them tell you that, oh, yeah, we, you know, legitimately think Kevin Lowe, you know, had the numbers and the uh, pedigree to be in before, you know, whatever list of guys you want to put there, but they have their own criteria. They have their own process about doing this, and if they choose not to share that, then they're opening themselves up to the criticism that comes along with making selections yeah. year by year and going and having to deal with the questions and the back and forth that's going to come. I heard Brian Burke on Tim and Sid yesterday, uh, just a few hours after they had come out and announced the, uh, you know, the selections, and they, you know, sort of asked him what, you know, what makes the difference between year fifteen and year one as to why someone didn't get in the Hall of Fame, and you know, the best answer that Burkey could give. You know, to anybody, was sometimes the class pushes you year by year, right? There's just some guys that are destined to be first ballot Hall of Famers and, you know, aren't going to wait a year or two. But that excuse only flies so far for me to a degree of, you know, okay, yeah, maybe you can see that for a year or two for some guys, but. I mean, you're talking Doug Wilson, was that like what, year 24, 24 yeah. or something like that? You're telling me he was, you know, he was number six on the list every year for 24 years or something like that. I, I don't buy it. And it's something they're going to have to live with. And clearly it's something they're OK with or or they would have changed something up about this and and been more transparent about it. So it, I think it's a fair conversation for us to have.
0: Uh, next year, I think there are three shoe-in first ballot Hall of Famers. I-, I can't see how the Sedin's don't get in on their first try. They absolutely the Swedish class of the Hall of Fame. And Zetterberg too. He's and yep. and I think you might as well put Alfredson in next year too. Make make it four Swedish players and just cut the all Swedish. Find a Swedish. Wouldn't building. bother
1: me in the slightest.
0: Jimmy, give me some Hokin lube in there too. So if you go <laughs>
1: Alfredson lube
0: and then the Sedin's and zetterberg find a swedish builder of some sort and and just make it the all sweden uh class of 2021 i'd have no problem. yeah we'll have
1: a we'll have our swedish wing and we'll open it up next year we'll start perfect start with the sadines to go in there and uh zetterberg the seventh round pick he's destined to go in there yeah i'm totally for this uh on
0: the text line at 960 960 um our resident punster what's your theory on flurry not getting in Ah, you're getting blocked yep kirsch says no. that we have to forward things to him before we can block a texter i'm not doing it you know what you're getting blocked for that awful pun. see you later Yep. see you later you're never texting again i would never i would oh. never do that he's too funny uh <laughs> this from wedley i think i was the most important sen. signed radic bonk apparently bonk listening to the program today uh no, very nice. Radek Bonk spurred the best Senators fan account on Twitter, uh, Bonk's mullet. But that's about his, only, his only claim to fame. If you've met the gentleman behind Bonk's mullet. You'd like them even more. Um, <laughs> Jen Botterill should have got in. I, I think she will be a Hall of Famer at some point. I, I don't see why you couldn't have put Botterill and St. Pierre in at the same time. I don't know why it has to be one. Well, yeah, I don't know what the aversion to putting year.
1: two women in the class is. They've been so stingy about that.
0: And and maybe because women's hockey compared to the history of the NHL, because it's it's not as you know, we're not talking about a hundred years the same way or at least a hundred years the same way in the spotlight. Maybe they're maybe they're trying to make it so they, they don't run out. I don't know. But I, I feel like they could put more than one in in years where there are definitely reasons to put multiple people in. Like putting both Botterell and, uh, and St. Pierre in, nobody would have batted an eye yesterday. They're both worthy Hockey Hall of Famers. I'm glad St. Pierre is going in. Jen Botterell will get in one day. But they could have put her in yesterday easily. I don't, I don't know why, they're, to your point, why there's an aversion of um, putting more than uh, two women's hockey or more than one women's hockey player in per year. Uh, what else we got here? No matter how you paint it, Um, he's not a Hall of Famer Kevin Lowe is Gretzky's buddy somebody also goes Craig McTavish is going to get in before Flurry. maybe they'll put in all the others from the glory days I don't know Um, this from Mike the NHL makes so many mistakes with their selection processes from the Hockey Hall of Fame to the top 100 all the time in my opinion this reward has lost its luster and aura it's not the Hall of Fame it's the Hall of the Very Good they charge customers to attend the Hall so in my opinion they should take the criticism seriously Um, so there are a a few of the texts at 960960. I, I, I think the criticism was warranted, but I also think at the same time, it's like banging your head against the wall because I don't see any of the things that we criticize the Hall of Fame for being changed anytime soon. They're always going to operate under a shroud of secrecy. I'll be shocked if that ever changes, but I'll be pleasantly surprised if it does. For the, for the time being, we're well within our rights to criticize. Um, okay, we are underway on a Thursday afternoon. Welcome to Pender and Steinberg. My name is Pat Steinberg. He is Logan Gordon. Riley Pollack along with me here. Uh, my son is with me at our Sportsnet 960 downtown studios. <laughs> uh, hi, Ned. Hi, son. You look good today. Um, Peter Klein off today. What, do we know what Klein's doing? Because he's just taking a random Thursday off. He's working tomorrow. He's moving or something. <laughs> Yeah, is this is like really a Jason, moving?
1: Jason DeForest esque day off.
3: Just
0: like, hey, it yeah, is. I'm it is a mo- it's like
1: he wasn't even moving. He's like preparing to move. So right, like that was the excuse we got.
0: Yeah, he's not actually moving, but he's getting things ready to move. But they haven't even finalized where they're moving yet. Is that or have they finalized mm-hmm. where they're moving yet? Yeah, I don't know. I love you, Klein. I hope you're doing well. And if you're listening right now, we love you very much. Um, let's talk some baseball and let's actually talk some baseball, not yelling about greedy owners and yelling (laughs) about greedy players. Let's actually talk about baseball. And for the sake of this conversation, assume everything goes according to plan and come about a month from now, we're watching live ball games on television. The Jays are back in action. They're playing against the Yankees. They're playing against the Red Sox, so on and so forth. We have not had a ton of time to delve into this this week. There's been a lot of other things. There's been hockey news, the Hockey Hall of Fame news yesterday. So we haven't had a ton of time to talk baseball. But what do we think about these restart rules? And specifically, when games start being played, there will be two notable rule changes for this shortened 60-game season. A universal designated hitter, um, what that means is we all know the designated hitter has been in the American League for ages uh but this season at least the designated hitter will also be applied in the National League which means no pitchers at bat in the NL uh that is one rule change for this season the second is that we will see runners on second base once games go beyond 9 innings so top of the 10th inning the road team will have a runner on second base to start the inning and that is there to help facilitate more scoring it is there to help cut down on marathon games knowing how condensed this schedule is and how tight the schedule is so um, those are the two significant rule changes now let me say this I am fully understanding that they have to do things differently because we're living in a pandemic world, because this is such an unprecedented year for Major League Baseball. So I I totally understand why different things are being done. But what do you make of these two rule changes? Your thoughts on the universal designated hitter, which I don't like. I'll tell you that in a second. And your thoughts on a runner on second base, which I do like for this season only. Um, Your thoughts before I give you my justification, though, Logo
1: yeah we I mean we got, we got a little bit onto it uh, off air yesterday about the Dh uh, I, I've been for the DH being a universal thing for a while I'm not um, as big on the traditional side of it that it needs to be there I think that uh, most sports and especially in baseball you're always trying to attract new fans and you're trying to you know create a a spectator sport more and more, and I think that uh, a designated hitter uh, over a pitcher especially is uh, a much better way of creating offense. I think that it's exciting. People are there to see runs being scored and home runs and all that sort of stuff. So I'm I'm all for that, and I do like the leagues being more on even ground as far as that's concerned too. And as far as the extra innings one go, I I totally see it from – Uh, A speed perspective and trying to to speed up games you're gonna be trying to fit 60 games into I believe it was 66 or 67 days you you just can't have games going 14 15 innings Uh, I think it's acceptable for this season I'm curious if it'll be uh, something they adopt full-time if they get back to a, a normal schedule in the next few years it's not something I would like to see continued but for this season, I'm, I'm okay with it just because we have to, you know, get so much done in such a short period of time for baseball.
0: Here's why I, I like the, the one rule and I don't like the other, and you kind of led me perfectly into it, because I think there's a far greater chance of one going forward and being just something that happens from this point on and not changing and one that will be this season only. I cannot see them starting games or starting extra innings rather with a runner in scoring position other than this 60-game season. I think for 2021 – when they presumably start the season in March, uh, I don't think that'll be part of what we're talking about. However, I can easily see the universal designated hitter carrying over from this season into seasons beyond never going back. So that's why that's why I like one and not the other. Now, let me say this. I <laughs> the only reason I don't like the universal DH is because uh, it's I just I like the novelty of a pitcher hitting. I really do, and I know that it doesn't. I, I know it doesn't do anything for offense. There are very few proficient hitters uh, that'll come up to that'll come up to bat when when your sole purpose, especially as a starter, is to make sure that you are at your best once every five days. You're not going to be taking as many rips uh in BP you're not going to be uh you're not going to be going for those marathon batting practice sessions you're not going to be in the cage uh after hours under the bleachers like they had at Burn Stadium like that that's that's not going to be what a pitcher does so it does very little for the offense of the game but i've always liked the novelty i've always liked the strategy this is it's it's strictly a preference thing because i fully believe that it'll be more entertaining <laughs> With without pitchers hitting. The universal designated hitter will make the game more entertaining from mm-hmm. an offense standpoint. I cannot argue that. But I like the fact the leagues are different. I like the fact that there is different strategy in the National League than the American League. It's subtle. I like I like the whole idea of the double switch and 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 some of the different things that a manager has to take into account when he's got a pitcher, some of the different strategy plays and and different ways you might use pinch hitters. I just have always liked that subtle difference from league to league. It's a nod to history. It's a nod to when the National League and the American League were not unified under one banner and they were Warring against one another, and there was a lot of look. There were a lot of early 1900s. The American League, the National League, didn't like each other, and so you know all those things. I I like the nod to history. I like the subtle differences. I like the novelty. It just—it's always been cool for me. So that's the—that's my only tie to it, and that's the only reason I don't want to see it change. I fully realize that it'll be more entertaining, and we'll see more offense, and we'll see more home runs. All of those things. I cannot argue with you. I can't sit here and say you're wrong. I, I just like it when pitchers hit. I, I, like, I like that difference between the American League and the National League. And really, by removing the designated hitter, you essentially, th- there is no reason to have an American League and a National League. You can just, uh, right from that point forward, you might as well just regionally realign the league And have a Western Conference and uh, or a a Western League and an Eastern League like uh, that. That's Mm -hmm. that's my only objection to it. It's simply down to a nostalgic tie I have to history and the fact that I just like it.
1: Yeah, look, there's. I've always long believed that the more strategic manager. Needed to be in the NL compared to the AL because of exactly what you said—the double switch and and what you know what comes up when the the bases are loaded and you've got your pitcher coming up and I'll give credit there are some pitchers out there that can absolutely rake. There's some of them that uh, fully have earned their batting stripes. There's some that certainly have it, and it can be a bit of a it can almost be a bit embarrassing to watch. And so few are, are like Shohei Ohtani of the Angels who. You know, just seemingly picks up both uh, pitching and and hitting as if it's nothing to him. Uh, And ironically, he signed with an American League team, not a a National League team. But uh, I'm okay with it going away. I'll, I'll live with it. I do... I do think I you'll think miss the occasional funny one of you know a pitcher just getting blasted past a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. But I, I do think there's something about the regionality thing, too, that could be interesting to see how if they wind up changing it like that.
0: I think it is going away, by the way. Like, I, I don't think the universal DH will be a hit, and it'll go forward. I, I, I'll be stunned if pitchers ever hit in the majors again. Uh, A couple of texts before we wrap the segment. You're right, Pat. Nothing more exciting than watching a pitcher try bunting or taking three straight pitches in the strike zone. Not a novelty, though. Older than the DH. I understand. Novelty is maybe the wrong word to use. I understand it's older than the designated hitter. I just like the uniqueness of it and the uniqueness of baseball having difference it's the only league where that happens there's no there's no differences in the way football or or hockey or basketball are played based on where you sit the the afc and the nfc there's no difference the western conference and the eastern conference there's no difference i've always liked the instead of novelty i'll use the word uniqueness of it all but i'm not sitting here saying that a pitcher taking three straight (laughs) strikes down the pipe is exciting um but i've i've always just liked it uh and this one Oh, come on, Pat. Pitchers batting is terrible. It's like watching David Ayers play. Just terrible. I don't know. David Ayers, how many wins do you have in the NHL, Texter?
1: David Ayers beat the Toronto Maple Leafs, thank you very much. He
0: sure did. Uh, But regardless, whether there's a universal DH going forward or not, It'll be interesting to see what a 60-game Major League Baseball season looks like and how that changes things going into the postseason. Okay, he's Logan Gordon. My name is Pat Steinberg. We're underway on this Thursday afternoon. Hey, why is Vancouver no longer in the running to be a hub city? Or at the very least, why are they no longer the front runner? We'll get the latest on all that and more with NHL insider Chris Johnston. He's coming your way next. We're underway on a Thursday. It's Pender and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. And now Chris Johnston, our NHL insider, joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on the program. And lots happening in the hockey world over the last couple of hours. Or actually, even going back to yesterday, plenty of hockey news to touch on with CJ. Uh, Chris, let's start with Vancouver, which when we last spoke, seemed to be locked in or as close to locked in as you could get as one of the NHL's hub cities. But in the last 48 hours, things have changed. What can you tell us as to where we are today in that regard?
4: Well, it, it doesn't appear as though Vancouver is going to be a hub, and, and you know I don't want to declare anything too firm because you know as we've seen, things do tend to change. It, it would seem pretty quickly with with what's gone on in the hub cities, but you know at this point the the government of British Columbia and the NHL you know don't see eye to eye on exactly how things should work in the event that there's a positive test. uh You know BC has been one of the the provinces. There's been the province that's uh, had the most success at uh, you know limiting the spread of coronavirus they have very few cases uh, in their city and in their province at this point in time and i think understandably to a degree they they want to keep it that way and and you know there's only so far they're willing to extend uh you know their their policies to in order to you know have the nhl teams come and play there and at least at this point in time you know that that seems to be a deal breaker again i i can't say 100% because mm-hmm. Things have kind of swerved and moved throughout this process. But, you know, at this point, you know, two days ago, certainly when we spoke, uh, Pat, you know, it looked like things were on track very much for them to be confirmed as one of the hubs and and all that momentum has since been lost.
0: So where does that leave Edmonton and Toronto?
4: Well, it's a little different for for those two cities because the provincial governments in both Alberta and Ontario, I think, have, have shown more of a willingness to, um, you know, to to see eye to eye with the NHL on on what would happen in the event of positive tests within the bubble, and and so you know, I would say that those two cities now uh, have new life. You know, both of them in within the last four or five days have updated their their bid package and addressed some concerns with some tweaks. In the case of Toronto, they actually moved the entire place within the city where the hub was going to be and came up with a an alternative plan to what they'd initially offered, and okay. I think it was viewed quite favorably. Uh, by the NHL, they're basically going to use some some exhibition grounds here. That's about I'd say a kilometer and a half, two kilometers from where Scotiabank Arena is. But it's a, a huge space that includes the arena where the Marlies uh, typically play, and the, the Toronto Raptors have a large new uh, practice facility on that that spot. In addition to a, a you know fairly high end hotel, and so between you know some of the amenities you could have by opening the Raptors practice facility, that that hotel space, and then you know, even having a practice rink all within what could be a completely contained bubble uh, that, that none of the public would be able to get anywhere near. You know, it, it does seem as though that there's there's some hope now for that bit, but, you know, I can't uh, label one or the other a front-runner now. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard for me to have a, a total grasp on, on where this is headed, but, you know, I do think if if Vancouver doesn't find a way to – change the course of the conversation around their bid that it will go to one of Toronto Edmonton. Okay. Um,
0: And that's, that's interesting. Do we have like, it, it seemed like there was this momentum to have a, an announcement this week. And then obviously there's been a snag and, and things have had to go in a slightly different direction. So what do you understand in terms of timelines and when we might actually hear about things officially?
4: Well, there is no more time basically. I mean, at the absolute latest early next week, this would have to be confirmed. You know, I would expect if they can, they'd like to get it done sooner. I mean, you know, even tomorrow night, we've got a, an NHL draft lottery show, a mm-hmm. uh, full hour window there. You know, Gary Bettman and Bill Daly will be on set at the NHL Network Studios in, in Secaucus, New Jersey. Uh, I'm sure they're going to be uh, talking to the cameras, saying something, giving some kind of update on on where things are at or what they're thinking for the return to play. And so... You know, I, I do think that there is going to be some opportunities here to announce the cities if they can get the agreements done and if they can settle once and for all on where they're going. But, you know, at this point in time, at this hour, you know, they haven't got there. I do think at one point there was some thought about even trying to announce it by today. You know, that was earlier in the week. But, um, you know, it does seem that that's going to go by the wayside here and they'll they'll try to zoom in on, on where they're going to pick. I mean, I think, you know, the one thing that we, we don't have full into is, is there, there's so, so many of those small details matter when it gets down to the end and and so you know my understanding is there's been a lot of phone calls between the the, the people organizing in each city and, and the nhl addressing concerns uh seeing you know getting clarification on certain aspects of the bid and so you know all the those details have to be taken care of before anything can be finalized i mean it's all well and good for us to apply and, this city's good because it has a nice hotel and there's not that much COVID. But, you know, there's yeah. a lot more that goes into into whether this thing happens. I think that's what happened in Vancouver, frankly. I mean, it, it ticked every box and still does, except for the fact that, you know, essentially my understanding is that, you know, in the event that, say, a player on the Flames, you know, got uh, positive tests for, for COVID while in the bubble in Vancouver, you know, the, the B.C. government would want anyone who came in contact with them to have to sit out a period of time, not just, the individual that produced that positive test as part of the contract tracing, and you know, obviously that would either delay or completely disrupt the the schedule the NHL would like to work on. I think you know the way the league envisions this happening is that if you know there is a you know one positive test on a team that that individual would be removed for the point in time until they produce negative tests, but that the games would continue going on without them. And so you know that's a fairly sizable hurdle, but it is. You know, really, one small detail in, in in what was a pretty large bid and comprehensive bid. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it can be rushed. But you know, certainly we're down to the final days for all of this this return to play package. I think to be wrapped up and for for something for the sides to vote on. It's it's
0: actually it's funny you mentioned that, CJ, because you know here we are. It's uh, June twenty. What is the the date today? June 25th. 25th. So when you think about that, because because we haven't had hockey since March, it doesn't feel like July is less than a week away. Like July is Wednesday and you're like, Oh, that means July 10th is like two and a half weeks away. It really, like if, if they want to get training camp going and, and underway as planned by July 10th, like they, they really don't have much runway left. We've been saying they've got runway for so long that it's time to take off. Isn't it?
4: It is. And, and they also don't have runway on the back end. I mean, I think the league is kind of, locked into the idea of when the quote-unquote new off season would have to be and all those types of things. And, well, you know, there's a little wiggle room. I, I, I do think there's been some at least contemplation that maybe July 10th for the start of camp becomes July 13th or 14th. You know, I think you know, we, we might see that that date shifted slightly, and I mean very slightly. Um, and as a result, everything behind it would, would go back a couple days. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's not as though without completely reimagining everything, all the work that's been laid that we're going to see the start of the season delayed three or four weeks from from what's expected now. I just don't think that's possible. I mean, maybe if they absolutely have to, there's a way to do it. But, you know, really I think we're in the window now to to see some action. I mean, there, there's, there's some good indications here too. You know, I've heard, especially here in the last day or so, some very positive thoughts on both sides of the table about the direction of the, the collective bargaining talks. You know, there's, there is an expectation that there'll be something – You know, the framework, not the full CBA, but there'll be some kind of extension that uh, should be finalized, I think, by early next week and and something for players and owners both to review and vote on. You know, I I do think a lot of the protocols are in place. It's a matter of finalizing these subsidies. You know, I I don't know that they're all that far off of producing that document, but, you know, every day matters at this stage. And, And, you know, as of last Friday, the general managers were told that July 10th is still the target. I think the NHL would like to, to keep to that. But, you know, there is a scenario here where maybe an extra couple of days are needed and then the start of camp is pushed back ever so slightly.
0: Okay. With Chris Johnston, our NHL insider, lots of different ways to go. Um, but you you, uh, you kind of brought up the CBA. So let's go in that direction first. Uh, interesting tweet uh, from Artemi Panarin today of the New York Rangers, essentially talking about escrow and how there needs to be an agreement in place about escrow if the players are going to come back and and resume this season. What did you make of Artemi Panarin's comments today?
4: Well, the timing of it, I, I will admit, is a little perplexing to me because, you know, my understanding is the escrow issue has been dealt with in terms of some kind of informal agreement reached as part of the CBA talks. I mean, essentially, what they're going to do to, to simplify this is, is they're going to fix... Set escrow for next season and the year after, and the year after that, and you know any any overruns, because you know in in the in the case essentially they're they're going to limit player losses off their salaries for next year and the next year and the next year, and and you know if the owners end up uh, you know on the hook for more than 50%, I think that those will be uh, you know made up down the line somehow, and that's sort of a complicated way of putting it, but you know my understanding essentially is that next year players. Already, kind of know, assuming that they ratify the CBA and that the owners do the same, that you know the escrow is going to be set at 20%. Now, I can understand why that's a big deal for someone like Artemi Panarin. He's due to make 13 million next year, so 20% means he's paying 2.6 million back into the pot that he's never going to see again, and that's before taxes and agents' fees and everything else that that you know comes out of his expenses. So it's it's not an insignificant amount of money, but mm-hmm. you know, I don't I don't know that. I'm not sure that there's any way that that's going to change at this point. I mean, again, my understanding is that's more or less agreed upon, and I think it's been kind of agreed upon as a structural thing for quite some time in the CBA talks. I will tell you what's interesting, and I don't know where it's going to end up, is that I know there's been some discussion about potentially allowing players to defer salary as part of disagreement. Again, I can't say for sure whether this will end up in the CBA, but I think it's been discussed. And the way to look at that is really a way to appease some superstars because, you know, for the most part, the the, the big-name players that have signed contracts in the last couple of years have, have all gotten massively front-loaded deals, whether it's guys like Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, John Tavares, Panarin. You know, a lot of these players are do more money up front, and and the, the problem for them is that next year is going to be the year that you pay the highest escrow of your entire career. And so if, if there's a way to push back some of that money uh, the idea would be that, that you're going to be paying less escrow in future years. So maybe maybe that's what Panarin's pointing at. You know, I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, I, as I say, uh, these things can always blow up, and historically they usually do. But, you know, yeah. my, my my best intel on this has been that there's there's some real positive momentum right now to uh, wrapping up the framework of the CBA, something like a memorandum of understanding that uh, the, the sides can will be able to vote on here in the next week or so.
0: CJ, you have covered – lockouts before and you have uh like for instance the last nhl lockout uh you were one of the the main breaking story hubs uh during that whole thing give us the i guess give us the history of nhl escrow where it started what it was designed to do why it exists and why the players hate it so much
4: well i think the players hate it because it's money taken off their their checks and and you know I'm not going to belittle all players, but I don't know that all the players understand how it works. And so, you know, maybe some of these guys are young or it's never been explained to them. They never thought about it. But if they sign a contract that says $5 million, I mean, it's not truly 5000000 million they're getting. It's, it's, it's $5 million less whatever the escrow ends up being for that season. And so the reason escrow exists is because salaries are given out in advance, uh, but we don't know how much the league brings in that year until at the end of the season. And so, you know, because the owners and the players have agreed to split the the total revenue in half, you know, it's possible that the players get paid more during the year and then have to pay some back to to even the scales. And that's essentially what escrow is. It's taken out of the the, the checks ongoing and kept in a pool and then at the end of the season, you know, sometimes say they take 15% and it ends up being 13%, and players get 2% of their salaries back in the future, but you know, it's it's a practical function if you're going to have a fixed system where you, you know, you guarantee that owners get 50% and players get 50%. You, you don't know what the total revenue is going to be until you get to the end. And so there's no sort of clean way to, to operate that kind of system. And as a result, escrows in there as a protection to make sure that you're, there's a way to balance it. And I think why players hate it, and I don't blame them. They, they look at their checks, and, you know, these guys, for the most part, I think, are probably not, in every case are in the top tax bracket. So depending where they live, they're seeing 50 or 52%. Taken off their checks for, for various taxes. And then they see another 15% or in the case of next season, it sounds like 20% taken off. And, you know, all of a sudden your $13 million salary, if you're a Temi Panarin, you know, it it might be four or 5 million in terms of what you actually get. Now I'm sure the rest of us could gladly live on that. uh, But, you know, it's not as much wealth, I guess, as you might think these players are able to accumulate. If you just call up their cap friendly page and Mm -hmm. look at, what they're, they're earning. And so I, I think it's a bit of a sore point for, for guys, you know, also in the NBA and there's a, it's a different economic system slightly, but in the NBA, the, the escrow is capped. And so it's supposed to be an even split of revenues, but the players, I believe only uh, can pay up to 10% escrow. So if it ends up 12%, you know, they, they end up 2% on the better of the ledger. So, you know, this is always going to be a bit of a sore point for guys, but you know, I, I don't see a solution absent changing the entire system. And, and, given that the league sacrificed the 0405 season in its entirety and the Stanley Cup to get this system, I can't imagine what it would take to see them change the system. So, you know, there's probably some small things that, that, that can be done to maybe lessen, to make it a little bit more fair or make the players a little more comfortable with it. And I assume that that's part of what we're going to see in the CBA extension. But there's, there's certainly no, there's no obvious solution beyond abolishing a fixed salary cap to eliminating entirely
0: that's uh, the best explanation of extra, uh, escrow rather i've ever heard uh appreciate that very much because uh, as, as much as i like to think i've got a decent grasp of the cba and all that goes into it it can still be very confusing sometimes chris johnston's with us our nhl insider he joins us tuesdays and thursdays on the program okay back to more fun stuff and you talked about tomorrow I'm I'm like what what is tomorrow going to look like for us on the outside? Because this is the first time since the NHL did their big thing about their plan to return to play, and that's about a month ago now. This is the first time the NHL has had an actual event that they can put on live television and produce as their own uh, as their own thing and their own entity. What, what does tomorrow's draft lottery look like? How much of a spectacle is it? How big a deal did they make it? And, and what else on top of the lottery balls are we going to see?
4: Well, it's going to be socially distanced. So, you know, normally in this case, you'd have a representative of all the teams in the studio. And, and you know, we've all seen that when the cards get flipped around. You know, that's not going to be part of it. You know, those, those guys will be patched in uh, from their, their team offices or their home office, wherever each of them are. You know, as I said, Gary Bettman and Bill Daly from the NHL will be in, in studio and and Gary Bettman will oversee the actual drawing of the balls along with someone from Ernst & Young to, to verify that it's, it's done correctly and fairly. Um, you know, it, I think it is significant uh, because there haven't been many opportunities where the league's produced live new programming where they can try to make a bit of a splash. And, and you know, I do know that the commissioner plans to make some remarks. I'm sure part of what he says is still TBD based on what can be wrapped up in time and, you know, what can be decided. But, but certainly I would think that he's going to want to offer a little bit more than, than has been said already by, by someone in his office uh, about the status of the return to play and his mm-hmm. optimism for this happening and the work that's been done. You know, and then beyond that, for a few teams, and notably the Ottawa Senators who have, you know, two of the, the balls in the lottery because they own San Jose's pick in addition to their own, you know, it's, it's a big night in terms of creating some excitement potentially for some of those fan bases, you know, be it at Detroit, which had a historically awful year this year, a rebuild year where you know, that was all designed around getting a top pick and an impact player. As I mentioned, you got Ottawa. You've got the, three Cal- the other two California teams in L.A. and Anaheim uh, that are there in that mix. You've also got something unusual because of the way they're doing it. You know, the eight play-in series losers also technically have a ball in that lottery. And, and, you know, any, any one of them could in theory, you know, win the right, either to the first, second, or third overall pick. In the event that happens, there'll be a second lottery uh, further down the line to determine, you know, who gets that pick based on what happens uh, in the play-in series. So, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be different, but I think that there should be some degree of anticipation for it, for hockey fans, especially those that are hoping to see the, the league return. And it's, it's kind of funny timing as it turns out that, you know, tomorrow night usually would be the first round of the, the traditional NHL draft in Montreal, as it was originally scheduled. So, you know, it's uh, you know, it's 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 it was going to be a big day on the calendar. Just ended up a little different than we imagined yeah. because of 2020. Are, are
0: any chance that we get schedule or anything like that, or is that still too premature?
4: I'd love to tell you. You know, I, I I don't have a guess. You know, I I do think that the schedule is laid out. I just don't know if they can announce that. At this point, until you know the players have had a chance to, to vote enough. on the return to play protocol, it might be a little premature. Just in case something you know there's, there's some kind of hitch here at the end. Um, but you know, I, I do think that that there's a chance to you know whether it's hub cities or you know maybe in some kind of other rabbit up the sleeve. I, I just would expect there'll be some kind of um, announcement made or, or, or something given from the league you know with this opportunity as I say, it's an hour show and it's a pretty quick lottery. So, you know, they're going to have to have some kind of content on there and, you know, I'll, I'll certainly be watching closely.
0: Yeah, no, no, me too. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and the the last point I guess that I would ask you about is you, you talked about the significance for some of these teams, just a, a little bit more on the significance specifically for the Ottawa Senators. I mean, that 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 is a group of fans that, that want so badly to love their team, but with, some of what has gone on with owner Eugene Melnick and, and some of the, you know, Rousey's found himself in and some of the controversies he's found himself in. Plus the Eric Carlson trade and just the way things have gone on the ice since they made it to game seven of the Eastern conference final. It's been, it's been tough sledding for a Sens fan. How, how big a deal is tomorrow
4: for that organization? Uh, It's not a stretch to say it could be a completely transformative night. I mean, the odds aren't particularly high, but they could get the first and second overall pick uh, and, you know, or first and third or second and fourth, you know, the absolute worst they end up with is a fifth and sixth overall pick, which, you know, would be a disappointment in the moment if that's what happens tomorrow night. But I think when you step back and look at it, it's still a pretty good outcome. And so, you know, I think better days are ahead for the Sens. Um, You know, it's not to say they're out of the woods organizationally, you know, we still, I think, should, should have some question marks about the way the team's being run, the tremendous turnover. You know, they've had a number of presidents even in the last year. There's just not a lot of stability there. But if, if we're just speaking about the, the hockey product, I mean, you've got already Brady Kachuk and, and Thomas Shabbat in the system. You know, you have a player like Josh Norris who won the American Hockey League Rookie of the Year this year. He was one of the pieces they actually got for Eric Carlson uh, from San Jose. And then they also got the San Jose pick that's going to, you know, potentially be the number one overall pick tomorrow so you know as, as heartbreaking as that trade was for the senators i think that you can really start to turn the page on it if you get you know one of the, the top pick or two as a result of, of of what happened in that deal and so you know it, it it it's it's such a big night um you know i i would i would feel bad for Sens fans you know my brother-in-law is a sense season ticket holder so i got a little little sympathy for him because i you know i talked to him about the team uh, and i know what it's been like to be a fan there and so you know that'll be a nerve-wracking night for that organization because they they do need something good to happen and something very good could happen. I think Alexi Lafreniere would be, you know, a, a huge piece for them to land at this point in their development as an organization. But you know, e- either way, you know, I think they're well set up for this draft. And you know, as long as they they maybe find some of organizational stability, that I'm pretty confident saying better days are ahead for for them and and, and fairly soon. Good stuff,
0: CJ. Appreciate it, as always. Outstanding reporting, as always. We will talk to you again next week. Have yourself a great weekend, my friend.
4: All right, Pat. Thanks, buddy. It's Chris
0: Johnston. He's our NHL insider. Great stuff as always. Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Now open for limited dine-in service with all safety precautions in place. Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar. The best pizza, pasta, steaks, and ribs since 1975 at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast. It's Pinder and Steinberg on a Thursday afternoon. And I'm really excited for this next segment. We put together an all-time roster consisting only of players drafted by the Calgary and Atlanta Flames some surprising inclusions, some surprising exclusions. Let's dive into it next. The all-time Flames drafted roster. We're going to spend some uh, some time on this around the corner as we continue on Pinder and Steinberg, SportsNet 960 the Fan.
2: Back to Pinder and Steinberg, SportsNet 960 the Fan.
0: Who are the best players ever drafted by the Calgary and the Atlanta Flames? Sorry, Hall of Famer Jerome McGinley, you do not qualify. Sorry, current Captain Mark Giordano, you're not part of this conversation. Hey, you know what, Robin Regeer, don't even bother knocking on the door. Doug Gilmore can beat it. This is not the all-time Flames roster, but the all-time Flames-drafted roster is what we're about to get into right now. If you could put together a roster made up of only player players, rather, drafted by the Atlanta or Calgary Flames. Four lines, three pairings, two Coley's. What would that look like? And I'm putting you on the spot, don't worry. We've got you covered. We're going to delve into it right now. Welcome back to the program. Pat Steinberg, Logan Gordon along with you. And over at FlamesNation.ca, we put this together this week. A, a number of collaborators uh, did this for the Flames all-time drafted roster. Also, they've done one for the, uh, the Oilers and the Canucks and the Senators and the Habs. It's been a Nation Network thing. But at FlamesNation.ca, where I contribute alongside Ryan Pike, who joins us on the program. Uh, Logan Gordon is at uh, his spot as well. Let's dive into this because this is a really fun exercise, Pike. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it to you first to to tell us kind of how we put this together, the criteria. Just give us the um, give us the opening commissioner's speech of the all-time Flames drafted roster, which is the top story right now at FlamesNation.ca.
3: Well, I'll I'll go from uh, what our our good friend over at Older's Nation, Jason Greger, gave us his instructions when he sent us. Yes, this is, by the way, uh, and
0: Jason Greger was one of the contributors as well. There's, what, six or seven contributors to this, and then we came up with a consensus?
3: believe so. so. But, yeah, effectively, we're doing this Olympic team style. You're looking at uh, the best uh, players, two goalies and 18 skaters, uh, ideally in the position where they normally played. So, for example, TJ Brody predominantly plays on the right side, so you can't get fancy and say – Okay, TJ, you're playing on your offside because we saw how that went, and it's a good thing he's on the right side. Uh, but for other things like that, you know, predominantly, you know, if you if you played right wing most of your career, like Theron Flurry played center during the uh, the Stanley Cup year because there were so many right wings. But as soon as they had spots open on the right wing, he played most of his career on the right wing. So you can't get fancy and go, oh, he's a forward. You can you can move him around. No, no, no. We're doing this. We're doing this very very strictly. Uh, four centers, four left wing, four right wing. Six defensemen, each with their proper side, two goalies. Uh, and we're doing the two goalies was the two best goalies, as in the two best starters, not the best starter and the best backup.
0: Right. So we wanted to come up with the best possible roster. We're not, you know, it's not, OK, well, who would be the best fit on the fourth line? No, there's no salary cap. There's nothing like that. It's just the best possible flames all drafted roster and it's it's too bad i mean you're missing a lot of uh, the best players to ever suit up for the organization <laughs> uh logo that means no doug gilmore not drafted nope. by the flames that means no jerome mcginla not drafted by the flames mark giordano like if you wanted to bend the rules i'm sure that uh the overlords at the nation network gregor and co could have uh, could have allowed guys who were invited to a camp and then signed could have allowed him but that's uh that's too much gray area so no mark giordano robin Regeer was drafted by colorado not calgary there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of fairly significant names that were not drafted by the calgary flames so that's uh it's a good chunk i mean there's your hockey hall of famer in uh th- there's there's no jerome mcginla as part of this despite the fact he got elected to the hhof yesterday
1: yeah it's, hey, a, hey, and, it's and, and, a neat experiment as to how you know, drafting's gone over the years, and I like the fact that you know we're not limiting to just guys who had success with Calgary. We're talking, you know, if you were drafted by the Flames and you're, you know, a Hall of Famer, you spent most of your time somewhere else, you still make the team. It's a, it's a neat uh, look back as to how you would construct a roster of guys under a very certain criteria.
3: Go ahead, Pike. And, I know you're hey, saying there's, something there. There's no Kipper stuff either. I think you know the crazy thing Good is, point. is there's so many of these guys that we associate. Mm-hmm with their time you know the he was the third best the third string goalie with san jose when the flames traded for him but he was still a san jose shark before he was anything else
0: so that like a good chunk of that like the the key parts of the 0-4 run some were drafted by the flames but the the biggest keys Aginla, la kiprasov even Leopold, if you want to throw him in, Jelena, none of these guys were drafted by the Calgary Flames. So it it, it makes for a really interesting roster. So that's the criteria. That's what went into making these uh, decisions. Now, there were about six contributors, Jason Greger at 1260 and Edmonton, Pike, myself, uh, a few other writers across the nation network got into this. So my roster is a little bit different than what the consensus is. There are some players that are not on the roster um, that I had on and vice versa. But let's, let's start with the first forward line, Pike, and, and get into it from there. Because the first line is as scary as it gets. Uh, Joe Neuendijk was voted as the all-time, all-drafted first-line center, with Gary Roberts on the left, and Brett Hull on the right. Despite Hull playing very little in a Flames jersey, he counts for this. He was drafted by the Flames, and despite Theron Fleury and Sergey Makarov and H- Hoken Lube all playing the right side, it's tough not to have Hull as your first-line right winger when it's all said and done. I think he was pretty unanimous.
3: I can't imagine many of the ballots were, were too variable for, for that first line. I mean, you, know, you you posted you know, you posted yours and you know, you had the same you had all three gentlemen just in a different order, but you know, it's it's hard to argue with three guys that were that good for that long, granted in various places.
0: Wow, and I mean like the, the right side has gotta be the the best spot, like the, the best area for this group, right? I mean when you're talking about Paul, Flurry, Lube, Makarov as your your four right wingers uh, down the line. That's that's tough to uh, that's tough to really argue with, Logo. That's that's a that's a pretty good position of strength.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you can almost entirely switch those guys around almost on positions as far as like lines one through four, and I don't think you'd have much of a problem anyways. Another thing I found certainly interesting, especially on the right side, more than anything. None of these guys drafted particularly high. Uh Brett Hall is your highest overall draft pick when he was picked in 1984 at 117th overall. Fleury 166, Hawkenlube Lube was I believe in 1980 was a round 9 pick back then uh and Macroff 231st. Like you're talking guys that would be absolute steals in their draft.
0: Well, yeah, I mean you go take a look at where the Flames got Lube, 181st overall in 1990. And and, and a lot of this was due to the time. Makarov and Lube and and a lot of these guys were all playing in Europe, but it was different at that point. There were nowhere near as many players coming over from Europe to to play in the NHL at that time as there are now. It's a completely different and and far more global league in 2020 than it was in the early 1980s and when, when the Flames first got to Calgary. So... That that right side is bonkers. Um, that's. Did you have like, Pike when you submitted yours? Did you have it any different than what the consensus was? Because mine's exactly the same. Hull, Flurry, Lube, Makarov as the all drafted right side.
3: I was weird, man. I had Willie Pled over Sergey Makarov. Really? really? Explain I... yourself, young man longevity in numbers. I think, you know, I I really like Sergei Makarov, but I thought Willie Plett, you know, he gave you, you know, a bit of a physical edge that a lot of the other guys in your team didn't have. And, you know, I just think that he was a bit better for a little bit longer. But, you know, for me, it was basically 4A, 4B. You know, that was a coin toss for me.
0: Willie Plett, fifth round pick of the Flames in 1975, the Atlanta Flames, that is. Um, And then you had Sergei Makarov, who was a... 12th round pick of the flames in 1983 but he was the, the interesting thing here is like yes Plet had more longevity as an nhl player but how much do we count makarov's work internationally and how much do we count his job and and the, the work he did playing in the russian league and with, with the historic team seska moscow like he won rookie of the year he changed the calder trophy the Calder Trophy has the rule on it that you've got to be 25 or under because Sergei Makarov came over as a 31 year old and won the Calder Trophy <laughs> in his first year in North America. His he he joined the Flames the year after they won the Stanley Cup, had 86 points in 80 games, but he was 30 and 31, uh, so so at 31 and 32 rather. So he he won he won the Calder Trophy over the age of 30. They changed the rule after that. Like I. I looked at it more, Pike, as the best players, regardless of just... And, and everybody's criteria was different, but I looked at it as the best players as opposed to their time in the just the NHL or just their time with the Calgary Flames, and that's why I went Makarov over Plett. Makarov's in the Hall of Fame, and I'm not... Willie Plett was a great flame, but I, I just think that Makarov overall was the better player.
3: Yeah, and, and you know, I think the... Uh... Imagine how good Willie Platt would have been in that KLM line. Get out of here, Makarov. We're going to try Willie Platt in that spot. The, the I mean, you KLP never know. Line. The KLP line, he needs to learn some <laughs> Russian, but I think he could do it.
0: Uh, where would you go on that? Uh, like, are, are you on board with those that right side logo?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I was okay with it. I think Pike makes an interesting case for it, but for me, Makarov, just with an overall body of work, would have edged it for me because uh, for me, the exercise... You know, was just drafting the best overall players and not keeping it within the confines of the organization. So Makarov got it for me, but hard to argue with any of them.
0: Uh, the interesting one for me, and where I differed, and I'm curious as to where we go on this. So the consensus roster at Flames Nation down the middle, no question about Joe Newendike is the number one center. Uh, Who was the 27th overall pick in 1985? Kent Nielsen as the number two center, who was the 64th pick of the Atlanta Flames in 1976. Also, um, Guy Schwinnard was the fairly uh, consent, the first ever goal scorer of the Calgary Flames, pretty consensus on this list down the middle. He went 28th overall in 1974. Here's where my list differs a little bit. On the consensus roster is Tom Lysiak, who was a second round pick second overall pick, rather, in 1973. And he's on the consensus roster. He's not on mine. I had Sean Monahan on my roster uh, as he was a sixth overall pick in 2013. I think we all remember that. Um, that's a little bit more recent. Perhaps there's some recency bias going in there. But, guys, I look at Monahan, and, and despite the fact that we have the conversation all the time about is he a number one center and is he going to be the guy to drive the team over the hump and, and really turn them into this playoff contender? All that conversation is still valid but I still think he's one of the four best drafted centers the Flames have been able to put forward. He's a lock for 20 every year. He's really a lock to be in the 30 to 40 range most years and I I think Lysiak was a great player and, and had some great years but I think there's a little projection that comes into this, but I've got Monahan on my list. Maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm being a little bit too recent, recency biased, but I, I think Sean Monahan deserves to be on this list.
1: Monahan made made my list too, and the debate is interesting because you're right; we do go back and forth between. You know, whether Sean Monaghan's an average first line center or a very good second line center. The fact of the matter is, he's been a number one center in Calgary for most of his career. And that's where he's played. He's played big minutes for this team. He's been uh, a beast in overtime. He's put a ton of game-winning goals on. Uh, I believe he's had the second or third most playoff goals um, by a Flames player uh, by the age of 25. He's got like nine postseason goals already. Uh, for the majority of the time that Sean Monaghan's been here, he's been the guy at center for Calgary and is at least you know in the conversation when... Uh, Elias Lindholm's not playing center right now at least in Calgary mm. so he made my list too cuz he's played almost exclusively as a first line center here so far.
3: And honestly, I I differ from you guys. I I uh I had Lysiak, but no Schoenard and I had Michael Backlund but not uh not Sean Monahan. Really? And, and for for me the thing with Backlund is just the idea of I this will sound mean. I think Backlund's a more complete player, or at least has shown that he's a more complete player over a long period of time than Monaghan. For me, it was, it was very much a Monaghan versus Backland coin toss. Uh, I, th- I think they're both good at different things. I think Backlund is better defensively. I think Backland's a better two-way guy. Uh, it's unquestionable that uh, Monahan's a better offensive player. So it's sort of how much you're willing to give up in one area to get the other, but you know, back, you know, backland's played, you know, Backlund has longevity edge. Backlund has been, you know, uh, a tough minutes guy where you know Monahan hasn't really shown the ability as much to play tough minutes. And, you know, Backlund has been a Selkie nominee. You know, he's been, you know, he's been in the Selkie uh, voting pool for years, you know, granted some of that's reputational, but he's developed, you know, he's one of the better two way centers in the NHL and, you know, I don't think that, you know, if you look at the, the pool of guys, the flames have, you don't really have a lot of that. Uh, I also had, I'll, I'll be a weird one here. I didn't have Kent Nelson as a center. I, I had him as a winger. I didn't think he was as good a winger. And I had Corey Stillman as one of my four centers. So
0: Stillman was Stillman was on your, your list down the middle. Hey,
3: yeah, my four were Neuendijk Stillman, Backlund and Lysiak.
0: So no Schwenard, no um no Nielsen, hey, that's very and no Monaghan. Very interesting. And no Monahan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm and the outlier here. You you are. Um and you know how big a backland stand I am. Um and, and I, I really wanted him to get I really wanted to get him in there. I, I thought about it, but you know, I, I, I look at like Keith Schwinnard was an extremely productive player with with the Calgary Flames. Like he went in in four consecutive years. One hundred and seven points, seventy-seven points, eighty-three points, eighty points. You know his his the first two years that he played with the Calgary Flames, eighty-three points in fifty-two games, eighty points in sixty-four games. He had one hundred and seven points in eighty games in Atlanta. Uh, his first two seasons in Calgary is what I meant with those shortened um, the shortened skid. Like Guy was for a four or five years span an extremely productive player in this league and that's what you know i I maybe a little bit of bias he's the first guy to ever score a goal with the calgary flames that's kind of cool um but i i just go take a look at those numbers like that guy was i know it was in the 80s when 10-8 games were a thing but those are some pretty damn good numbers that he posted
3: it was in the 80s when tennis games were a thing. And have you seen what goalies were wearing back then? I mean, when I was researching like, my burning piece last <laughs> week. This is my, this piece, is uh, my point week. for
0: Monaghan. It's that, you know, the, <laughs> have you seen what the goalies were
1: wearing? A little tougher to score wearing? nowadays for Sean.
0: <laughs> goalies, uh, the, the the goal the goaltending in the 1980s, that was something else. Like...
3: Hey, hey, we're going we're gonna to get Kelly Rudy texting us and, and telling, us, telling us to lay off the goalies. They they did what they could with was what they had. It a different
0: position then. I, I, they don't even resemble one another. Uh, if you go back thirty years, okay, that's really so. Then you had Nielsen as a winger. Tell us about uh, tell us about your left side. I'll, I'll, here is the consensus left side that was published at Flames Nation, and then we'll get into uh, our deviations. Gary Roberts the number one left side, 12th overall in 1984. Johnny Gaudreau makes it as the number two left winger. He was 104th overall in 2011. Matthew Kachuk, despite only four seasons in the NHL, is your third-line left winger. And Eric Vail is the fourth-line left winger, a 21st overall pick in 1973. That is the consensus left side. But what did you have on your left side, Pike?
3: My left side was Roberts, Gaudreau, Kachuk, and Paul Ranheim.
0: Well, oh, Ranheim makes it over Vail. Interesting. Why Ranheim?
3: Oh, honestly, I just like the player. He's he, very good at everything, you know, good at everything, not bad at anything. I liked Vail, but you know, this is sort of a biased thing for me. I saw a lot of Ranheim growing up and I saw almost no Vail because he was gone by the time I became uh, someone who followed the NHL. But only you know, played vale. a season in a bit with with Calgary. Yeah, and, and I say Vale had the numbers. You know, he had the numbers. He had a Calder. I mean, if if you want to, it's if you want to say Vale deserves it over Ranheim, I have time for that argument. If you want to say Ranheim had the longevity and you know did different things, I'm you know I, I obviously am a fan of that argument, but it's sort of a coin toss for me here.
0: My uh my left side is exactly the same, just with a little bit different slotting. I had Kachuk one on my left side. Goudreau 2, Roberts 3, Vale 4. So same four guys, just different slotting. I think it speaks to how highly I think of Matthew Kachuk, uh, that I have named him the best drafted left winger uh, they've ever had um, and put him on the number one side. Like, my number one line, Joe Neuendijk, Matthew Kachuk, Brett Hull. That would be, like, Neuendijk was hard to hate. But with Brett Hull and Matthew Kachuk on the same line, that'd be the most hated line in the NHL because people hated Hull because he had that he had that smirk and that swagger, um, and, and you know he had the whole thing where he played for the U.S. even though he was born in Canada. Like the whole thing about <laughs> Brett Hull, like he was just not a very well liked guy. But you know he scored eighty goals a year a couple times. Um, New and kachuk Hull, that would be uh, something else. Where where do you uh, what do you like or what do you see on the left side logo?
1: Uh, I did wind up having Roberts as my number one on the left side, uh, which, by the way, uh, I think we need to take it just a quick second and recognize the greatness that was the 1984 draft for the Calgary Flames because uh, we, we didn't go quite that back that far when we were doing our uh, redrafts, but uh, this was a pretty good one for the Calgary Flames. Uh, when you get Gary Roberts, Paul Ranheim, who made Pike's team, Brett Hall, Gary Suter, to just name a couple of guys uh, that are on this team. Uh, Kachuk, for me, is on number two. My slotting's different, but the names are the same uh, as the consensus on Flames Nation. Uh, Goudreau, three, and then Eric Vale as my uh, fourth. I, look, Matthew Kachuk, uh, Pat, we, we just went through this the other day. We went through his draft class. Uh, I had him moving up to what would have been the second overall pick in that draft. I think he's future captain material for, for this team. He's just got that that passion and that desire to, to win, and I think he's an impact player uh, on almost all ends of the ice in what he does. So, And that's pretty hard to do because Goudreau's had, you know, it's hard to dismiss a guy that's had the kind of offensive output that Goudreau's had since coming in, uh, being drafted by the Flames. Uh, so I wound up going Robert, Kachuk, Goudreau, and Vail.
0: So I'm, I'm, now I'm very curious as to the uh, bizarro land that Pike's going to lead us down when we <laughs> when we delve into the blue line. And I say that in jest. I, I, I think it's really cool. This is a really fun exercise when you start to throw it around. If you're just joining us, it's uh, Pat Steinberg, Logan Gordon, and Ryan Pike from Flames Nation. Uh, Flames Nation put out this week the all drafted roster Pike and I contributed to this a few other writers from across the nation network Jason Greger and Edmonton and a few others we all put in our all drafted rosters came up with a consensus for the Calgary Flames it is the best roster that is comprised of players only drafted by the Calgary or Atlanta Flames again Noah Ginla No Giordano, no Regeer. All three of those guys would have clearly been locks, Gilmore, so on and so forth. These guys were not drafted by the Calgary Flames, whereas Brett Hull was, despite only playing a season here, he got on the list. New Indykes on the list. Uh, And now to the blue line we go, which is really interesting. Here is the consensus Flames blue line. Uh, The top pairing, was a a top power play pairing in the 1980s and boy did they put up points Gary Suter on the left he was the 180th pick in 1984 and Al McInnes on the right the 15th overall pick in 1981 that's your top pair second pair Paul Reinhardt who was the 12th overall pick of the Atlanta Flames in 79 and Derek Morris uh the 13th overall pick in 1996 your third pair Dion Phaneuf on the left ninth overall in 03 and TJ Brody makes the cut at 114th overall in 2008. Now, this might have people screaming at the radios, but Pike, it, it was a little bit more... Di- that that forward list was heated when talking about the, the conversation about who's going to get put on and who's going to get left off. Like Some pretty impressive players, Stillman, Monahan, Backland, all left off the consensus list for the forwards. Not a lot left off when it comes to the back end, and remember, Geo doesn't count, so... How Suter McInnes, Reinhardt Morris, Phaneuf Brody, how did that differ from your list that you submitted?
3: This is going to be much a big spoiler, but I had, that was my list. I had no, that, that was a six. I, I didn't have anyone different. The only thing
0: that I had different, I elevated Brody to my second pair over Derek Morris. That was the only difference that I had the exact same. The only guy logo that, and, and Pike and I were talking a little bit about this in, in compiling them, really the only other guy that can even enter the conversation at this point because Rasmus Anderson's career, Yusuf Alamaki's career, you know, 10, 10 years down the road, they might crack this list. I can absolutely see them cracking this list. But the only guy, when you take into account everything, going back to the Atlanta days, the only other guy is Robert Shvela, who barely, uh, barely spent time in the Flames organization, had a good NHL career. But those, those six, when it comes to drafted Flames defensemen, those were pretty much the consensus six. Nowhere near as much depth at that position than what we were talking about at forward.
1: No, it's, it's it really wasn't close. Anderson was the only guy that that I could even try to make a case for, and even then, it's you know you're kind of pulling at straws because of you know the length and longevity of the careers that the other guys have had, even if it's not with the Flames still outweighs what rasmus has done in a short time do i think that he if he continues the way he's going makes this list one day absolutely but right now those are the six guys the first pairing is absolutely unbelievable and there's there just wasn't much to choose from maybe you can switch your order up a bit like you did pat but other than that there there really wasn't a whole bunch to choose from which is weird because you would think through all those years and we had such a trouble with you know what forwards we going to get in and which ones weren't that there would be some sort of depth for the defense, maybe it comes later, in the likes of Valimaki and Anderson and whatnot. But right now, it's it's those six by a good margin. Piker,
0: and then like the, the only other bubble guys, Robert Spala, I guess Denny Goche, Tony Ludman. Those would be the only other bubble guys in this conversation.
3: Yeah, like just looking I'm on, I'm on Hockey Reference right now, and just you know, if you look at, there's five guys on the blue line drafted by the Flames with a thousand plus games. Uh, Fanuf, Brad Marsh. Morris, Suter, McInnes. so you know it's, it's a pretty short list. Brad Marsh played a thousand games, but only had he had less than 200 points, so that's you know that's not really you're not really jumping out of your skin to to, to give a spot for him. Ludman and Steve Conway were also very very high in terms of games played, but again, kind of like uh, you know like Brad Marsh, they weren't really huge offensive needle movers. Robert Svalo is a bit more. But you know he sort of his career was only you know his career was only like 15 games longer than Brody's is right now. Uh, you know Paul Reinhardt had 300 more points than Robert Svejda did in fewer <laughs> games, and he had almost as many goals as Brad Marsh had points. So it's hard to leave Reinhardt off. And TJ Brody has been a top pair guy for years and years and years and years and years. Like what we're at the point now where uh, what back has uh, been the top pairing guy for. Six seasons, seven seasons. That's I think possible, he was right. I think the year before he became captain, he was the top pairing guy or started the top pairing. And Brody's been with him for all but two of those years. So, you know, even even though like his numbers, you know, two hundred and sixty six reg- regular season points in six hundred and thirty four games, isn't you know, it isn't eye popping. It's very solid when you bring into account the guys he's playing with, and the guys he's playing against. I think he's an easy inclusion. So was was definitely not an area of strength. I mean, look.
0: Dion Phaneuf, yeah, he might have got traded out of Calgary, and it might not have been the uh, greatest end to his time here. Still a pretty good, still a pretty good defenseman with more uh, more than a thousand NHL games. So that's uh, a really good top pair. I think Reinhardt was no questions asked on that list as well. Suter, McInnes, Reinhardt in one tier, and then it, it kind of drops off in a little bit more debate. But Morris Phaneuf and Brody made the cut, and finally on our all drafted roster, this. This was easy and hard. It was easy in that Mike Vernon was clear. Like, there was no doubt about it. Vernon is in a class of his own. You know, there's, Pike, you wrote an article this week about Mike Vernon's case for the Hall of Fame. Like, Mike Vernon, yes, no doubt about it, the 56th overall pick in 1981. But then who is the other goalie? Is it Trevor Kidd? Is it Craig Anderson? Is it Curtis McElhaney? Those are really the three choices that you could have come up with. Anderson was the consensus. That's who I went with. He's had the best NHL career. Like for me, no knock on kid, but Mike Mike Vernon and Craig Anderson are the only two that I think you can really go with in this conversation.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I'm a big Curtis McLenny guy. I really enjoy everything about him, but he's a career backup. He's kind of a throwback, but I love that about him. But for the pers- purposes of this exercise, a guy who played t- less than 250 games as a backup isn't really who you want and then you know, you kind of look down the list. I mean, whew, the, Flame, the Flames' first round, uh, the Flames' drafting for goalies has been oh. kind of rough. Uh, okay, here, here's the list of, just, as, just to depress the listeners, goaltenders oh. drafted by the Calgary Flames who have played more than 20 NHL games uh, in ascending order. Jim Craig, Yoni Ordeo, Andre Trefalov, Danny Sabron, Jason Muzzati, Tim Bernhardt, Laurent Brassois, McIlhenny, Pat Riggin, Kid Anderson, Vernon. That's it. So, uh, oh, Dustin Wolf, we know you're listening. Hi. Uh, please change this. The, the <laughs> yeah. bar for you to have success in this organization is set like at your at your ankles. So, good <laughs> good <your> luck. At your ankles. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's just you know part of it is you know as as your your you know our, our dear friend Ryan Pinner always says goalies are weird. They're they're voodoo, but also the Flames had some just horrendous luck. I mean. You know, some of them were weird injuries. Some of them were just, you know, weird stuff happening. Some of them were, they trade a guy and then he became good. Craig Anderson, you know, at the time, uh, the Flames had oodles of goalies in their system, so he didn't really want to sign. And so he went back into the draft and Chicago grabbed him and then he became really good. And, you know, he's played 650 NHL games. He's got a good save percentage, good goals against. He's won a lot. Granted, not recently because he played Ottawa, but we're not going to hold that against him.
0: <laughs> the uh, It's just... Goal tending has not been an area of drafted strength for this team logo it's uh, we're, we sure do hope that Dustin wolf changes that or Tyler, Tyler Parsons changes that down the road but yeah it has not been uh, it has not been their area of strength Craig Anderson counts <sighs> despite the fact yeah. he went back into the draft
1: afterwards thank God he counts because this <laughs> list would be very very bad without him like I'm sorry if we, if we had to take Craig Anderson and do we have a, a heated conversation on our hands as to what's going to happen next no I mean if we thought the defenseman pool was a little slimmer to pick from the goaltending one uh is a kiddie pool and in, in depth there's just not much there Craig Anderson and Mike Vernon uh the consensus picks and I don't I can't see anyone arguing for them. look I think there's a, a an affinity, a, affiliation to uh, affinity for him I should say here in Calgary Uh, you know people love him to a degree and stuff but I mean you know 387 NHL games Craig Anderson's been a starter in this league for a long time and you know close to doubling him up in games and stuff it it really wasn't hard to choose here
0: yeah great exercise it was a ton of fun Uh, you can go check it out at flamesnation.ca right now the flames all-time drafted roster uh check it out what do you agree with what do you disagree with I, I really had a lot of fun putting that together uh it was difficult at times it was easy at times uh it was a really fun endeavor there's also an all-time drafted oilers roster habs senators um canucks so on and so forth across the nation network pike uh we are out of time we will uh hear from you on Monday because. There's uh, plenty of arena news that we got to get to, and uh, some design things when it comes to the new arena in this city. So we will catch up with you again on Monday. Thanks for doing this, pal. That was a lot of fun. Thanks,
3: Thanks right? And don't forget, don't don't forget the draft lottery.
0: That's right. The Flames. Yeah. The Flames have got a point two chance of getting the number one overall pick.
3: It could happen. You see, so you're saying Just don't chance. draft a
1: goalie.
0: It could happen. Yeah, please
1: don't draft a goalie. <laughs> uh, see you Let me I tell, I tell you what Askarov. See you guys. <laughs> You,
0: ryan pike from FlamesNation.ca helping us uh, break down the flames all-time drafted roster that was a lot of fun i i enjoyed that exercise
1: yeah that was really cool and it's kind of neat to put those limitations on yourself i mean look the organization's been around for you know a long time when you go back to the atlanta days and all that sort of stuff and the i mean the forwards list was just so much fun to go through and you know, debate and, you know, recency, guys that you've seen a lot of, guys that you haven't seen a lot of. It was a really cool experiment. Teams yet, but I'm looking forward to to seeing some of those other rosters on uh, the nation websites.
0: The Flames all-time drafted roster is at flamesnation.ca right now. Okay, let's put our focus on the Calgary Stampeders up next. Our weekly stamp spotlight has one of the best young and rising receivers in the CFL. Our stamp spotlight is next with Hergie Mayala
2: pinder and steinberg right now on sportsnet 960 the fan let's
0: talk some stampeters football on a thursday afternoon every thursday at 3 30 our stampeters spotlight we should be getting ready for a week three action in the cfl right now unfortunately we're not we're still waiting on news there but want to keep the stamps front of mind my name is pat steinberg let's welcome in our stampeters insider maddie rose is with us on the stamp spotlight as well hello maddie Hey, what's going on? Not much. And on the line right now, we have a former first-round pick of the Calgary Stampeders from 2019, a gentleman who had a breakout season last year. And if you talk to anybody in this league, uh, I think they would uh, point first and foremost to this guy as one of the fastest-rising young receivers in the Canadian Football League. Let's welcome in Herji Mayala of the Calgary Stampeders on our stamp spotlight right now. Herji, thanks for doing this today. How are you doing?
5: I'm doing good. Thank you, guys, for having me.
0: Hey, no problem. How uh, how are you holding up during the the strangest time in your football career? I, I think that's safe to say.
5: Yeah, but uh, uh, you know, just preparing and uh, staying ready for whatever whatever comes uh, my way.
0: So, how are you staying ready? Like, what uh, what have you been doing? What have you been doing to to make sure that whenever you get the call, that you'll be good to go?
5: Uh, during the winter, just you know, workouts. But uh, the facility just opened up. Uh, we got Keenan in there. That's you know getting us ready for you know football drills and uh, staying strong and uh, all the good stuff. So you
0: you you are back in the facility now. How that had to feel pretty cool to be able to to get back in there and see some of your teammates.
5: Yeah, right, definitely felt great. Not not seeing most of uh, most of them all winter. And you know, all of us just getting back in there just felt like you know back like the season maybe don't start. And uh, that's a great feeling for us
0: optimistic about how things are going optimistic that you know maybe we we might be able to see some cfl football this year
5: oh i think everybody wants to see football you know the league wants to see football the players want to play football so i feel like you know in the next couple weeks i hope that they come to you know an agreement and uh everybody get whatever they want
0: is it it's it's got to be weird for you like here you are you're just entering your second season in the league and and you know you're, you're seeing you're you're kind of Helpless in a lot of ways because you don't control anything, but you're also a player and part of the players association has, has to be kind of a, a weird spot for you. Cause I would imagine more than anything, you just want to play some ball.
5: Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, being this young, you know, a lot of the older guys, you know, they kind of, you know, played enough football. So, you know, for, for them, this is a rest. But for me, you know, young player, I just want to, you know, prove myself and uh, keep playing. And it feels weird, but I know, you know, at the end, it's all going, it's all going to come full circle.
0: Herji Mayala is with us. It is our Stampeders Spotlight. Uh, Stamps receiver Mayala joining us on the program. My name is Pat Steinberg. Maddie Rose is with us as well. Maddie,
2: Uh, Herji, have have you moved to Calgary full time?
5: Uh, I did for this year, and uh, I was, you know, waiting to see how this season was going to go and uh, kind of make my decision towards there. But I've been in Calgary all year, yes.
2: And the, what was that like for you, the transition? I know you moved around quite a bit. You were in New York for high school, then Connecticut for uh, college before coming here to, to be with the Calgary Stampeders.
5: Uh, it's it it great. I get to see another side of Cal, uh, Canada that I've never seen before. And, uh, you know, there's great people in the city, and uh, it's a great city, you know, uprising city. So, you know, it's great to be around this community.
2: Now, getting back to the start of the off season here in Calgary, where, did you stay here in Calgary? Were you able to head back east for a bit? Because uh, I know you were working out with some of your fellow receivers before COVID had shut everything down, uh, like you just mentioned there.
5: Uh, yes, uh, when the uh, off season started, I kind of went back home for you know, kind of forget a little bit, get away from football. But uh, I came back here pretty early, uh, J- uh, January, and then uh, ever since then, I've just been you know. Uh, working out with my teammates and uh, we had a good thing going, but COVID kind of set us back, but now we're back. So it feels great.
2: Now, who were some of those, uh, rece- I know you were working out with Nick Arbuckle and a few receivers as well here in town. Who are you working out with, uh, during that off season?
5: Uh, I was mainly working with Colton on track, uh, a fellow, uh, 2019, uh, receiver. And now uh, Andres, Andres, uh, so that decided to stay here and get ready for the season. So, uh, it was all of us, and then our uh, tours as the time went on, we kind of went with the DBs, Nick stats, uh my saw go and uh that's what uh, that's been our group.
2: So are you guys starting to get kind of a, a tight-knit group of young players on this stamps organization? you mentioned stats who kind of just joined the team in the off season to go played a little bit as well, and then uh, yourself and Hunchak drafted in 2019
5: Oh, definitely. I feel like you know uh, we kind of got to know each other. We know each other pretty well now you know I consider them like you know good friends of mine so I feel like uh, we get in there
2: we're talking to Herji Mayala here on Sportsnet 960 you mentioned it was good to get back into your facilities and see your teammates did you do anything creative to uh, get those off-season workouts at home going and uh, keep them going I guess in the off-season what was the was there a creative way you were able to do it or did you do it pretty simply
5: uh, I mean, I kept it pretty simple, just uh, a lot of running around, uh, Colton Hunchak, God, you know, God blessed them uh, to have a garage and, uh, you know, we kind of, whatever weights we had, like duffel bags, we just fill them with clothes and then, you know, just lift whatever weight <laughs> we
2: could. What was the heaviest you were able to get them up to?
5: Oh, uh, i was about 30, 30, 40, 30, 40 pounds, which was, you know, you the more reps you do, the heavier you get, so That's it was perfect for us. Yeah
2: yeah there you go uh, so i guess in that sense did it give you more of an opportunity to work on some of the technical aspects of your game rather than dive into fitness and maybe cardio like you would have to before a training camp i saw you've been working with foot lab uh footwork lab here in town as well uh they had worked with trey roberson last year too so has it given you more of a chance to maybe work on some of the technical
5: things yeah definitely uh being with footwork lab these uh... are. He's a great guy. He understands, you know, the movement of the receiver, uh, not wasting motion and stuff like that. So working with him definitely helped me, you know, kind of tighten up some of the things that I had. And also just, you know, for me it was mainly understanding the offense, understanding the team concept. And uh, spending the offseason here, having guys like Bo around, you know, someone that you can just ask questions on, uh, definitely helped me.
2: So was that one of the things that you wanted to really work on in the off season? was really taking that playbook and memorizing it like the back of your hand type of thing?
5: Definitely, I want to be able to play more than one position. You know, I want to be able to stay on the field uh, the whole game as possible. So understanding and knowing what everybody else is doing kind of, you know, going to get me closer to that.
2: How do you look back on that season for you? In the early on stages, I'd say kind of waiting for an opportunity, but as you did wait, the opportunity eventually came and we saw you really explode near the end of the year.
5: Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I feel like uh, the Caligula St. Peter's a great... Uh, organization to understand what player to bring in and uh when I first came in it was kind of rough understanding the playbook coming from uh U.S. football coming back to Canada football was kind of rough but Dave you know just told me to be patient and uh he was kind of he was kind of just slow with me you know he didn't push me out there he didn't throw me in the fire he made sure that I understood what I was doing and uh once it felt like I was ready for it and I felt like I was ready for it and uh he put me out there and uh the rest is history.
2: So now as a first round pick, you come in and maybe have some expectations of yourself to arrive and put up some numbers early on, but it must've been good to kind of know that they didn't have that pressure on you early on in the year.
5: Oh uh, yeah. It's, it's all good to knowing that, you know, the organization we have so many good receivers in our, in our receiving room, but as a player, as a, you know, as a competitor, you know, you you want to go out there and be the best on the field and be the best at what you do. And that's something that I was feeling, but you know, I just had to kind of wait my turn, I think.
2: We're talking with Herji Maiala of the Stampeders here. I wanted to go back to one game in particular last season. That was the game in Montreal Week 17 for you. You finished the game with over 100 yards. You caught all three of your targets, and it was a game where you were able to play back closer to home and really seemed to be a springboard into that strong end of the year. Five touchdowns in the last five games, if I'm not mistaken, including your first CFL touchdown the following contest.
5: Yeah, definitely. Uh going back to Montreal for me was uh was something great because I haven't been home uh like home home in a while. And uh going back and like, you know, people that saw me grow up, people that helped me get to the point that that where I'm at right now for me it was just, you know, a great opportunity to go out and, you know, show them that whatever they did for me was not wasted. For you, was
2: that the first game that uh your parents had seen you live as a Stampeder or your family had seen you live as a Stampeder?
5: yes my my family out east it was the first time kind of seeing uh where I was at in my in my development where i was at you know as far as like being a professional it
2: must have been pretty special as uh you get ready into this season i guess um one thing that's really interesting about this season uh the the new receivers coach for yourself mark way McDaniel, um what did you know about him before he was named the new receivers coach for you?
5: Uh, not really much, but like uh, the older receivers and both was just telling me that you know he's somebody to understand the game, somebody that just knows how to get away with stuff and somebody to understand the whole concept and uh windows and temples and stuff like that. So you know it was just you know st- I heard all good things and uh ever since he came out we had meetings and uh, I kind of see what they were talking about.
2: What What have you learned from him in those meetings early on, albeit in a in a virtual sense?
5: Uh, just uh. He really praise patience. Uh, when you go from American football to Canadian, American football is more just go 100% every single time as fast as you can. And now he's just teaching us, you know, how to understand, how to read defenses and how to, you know, temper yourself, not go full speed all the time and kind of go from 50 to 100 or 0 to 75 just so you can open yourself up.
2: I just got a few more here for you, Hergie And one other thing that kind of came up in that uh, conversation with or while we were talking to Bo Levi Mitchell he said that having Mark as a receiver they had such on-field chemistry back in his playing days so working Mm -hmm. with the receivers was a thing that Bo was excited to see was Mark working with the receivers for this upcoming season what's that dynamic like for you knowing that your receiving coach has had success as a player playing with your quarterback
5: Uh, I think it's it's great because you kind of understand you know some of the some of the standards you set for yourself and uh, you're going to set even higher for you so having somebody that understands that knows Bo and knows you know his tendencies kind of you know go help every single one of us you know you put a position to succeed
2: now during that interview Bo was heading off to the golf course uh what has kept you busy without having to get <laughs> to the facility all the time do you golf or, or are you much of uh, maybe a gamer online or, or what's keeping you busy
5: I'm definitely not a golfer. My swing is not, you know, pro level. But I'm definitely, a, I've been playing a lot of NBA 2K. I'm kind of a, nice. I wouldn't call myself a gamer, but I'll say that I I enjoy spending time playing video games.
2: Yep, yeah, yeah. Especially right now, I find that it's the a nice little competitive thing to do when there's not actual sports and Things like that to do. Um, I have to ask you about this as well. Uh, ASAP Herg was the nickname that kind of came out of the locker room from last year. I gotta ask you where that began.
5: Uh, man, it started with uh, Eric Rogers. Uh, we was in the locker room one day, just listening to ASAP Rocky from ASAP Mob. And now uh, I kind of knew all the words to the song. So like as I was singing, he just kept looking at me, and then he said at one point, he's like, "You know what? We're just gonna uh, we're just gonna call you ASAP Herg." At first, I was kind of like. That's, you know, like, okay, whatever. And then as it got bigger and bigger, I just kind of embraced it. I it went along with it.
2: We're kind of stuck. And, you know, as you have to embrace it at a certain point, right? Yeah. That's oh, awesome to hear, yeah. man. Like, yeah. Well, awesome to hear. Uh, Pat, I'll throw it back to you, man.
0: Well, and uh, we're talking with Hergie Mayala of the Calgary Stampeders and our Stamp Spotlight. Have you... Big play HM's the Twitter handle. Have you thought about just switching it up to ASAP Herg?
5: Oh, uh, definitely. That's that's been in the work. That's you know we talked about it, and uh, I feel like it's coming soon. It's coming very soon.
0: I like it. Hey, <laughs> Hergy, tell me about tell me about growing up in Montreal. Uh, we we know Montreal has a huge hockey tradition, but also uh, a very ingrained football tradition as well. Tell me about growing up in Montreal, how you got into playing football and uh, what what it was like playing football as a youngster in Quebec.
5: Uh it was great uh growing up in Montreal. Uh the first part that I played was basketball. And then as you play you kind of basketball, you kind of, you know, a lot of my friends play football. So after basketball practice, they will go to football, and I couldn't go because I didn't play football, so one day I just decided to go with them and uh did a couple practices. Uh enjoyed it. But I had to make a choice between basketball and football since my mom didn't want me to spend too much time playing sport and focus on school too. So uh, I ended up uh, choosing football. And uh, in Montreal, like you said, you know, people love football. Football is really deep in our culture. And, uh, you know, just playing down there, it was was a great experience for me because I learned from a lot of great guys. Guys like Anthony Thompson, somebody that, you know, uh, people growing up in my time kind of look at him highly. And I think somebody like that, you know, that you can look up to every single day, you know, it kind of, kind of felt great and uh pushed every single one of us to kind of get to this level
0: so what uh what went into choosing football over basketball how difficult a decision was that for you
5: uh i I don't think it was that hard because basketball always ended up getting fouled out so (laughs) it was kind of it was kind of no-brainer for me at one point because i couldn't finish a whole basketball game so it was like (laughs) i'll spend second half on the bench so i was like might as well play football where you know the fouls and all that is allowed so Oh uh, wow! My, my brain works towards that. <laughs> I like that. That's, uh, I've never heard that answer, bro. because there's a pretty lot of easy guys, decision at that point. I agree. Like, there's a lot of guys yeah. who,
0: who play both. Like a lot. Like you know, if you're if you're playing football at the highest at the highest levels, like if you're playing pro football, it means you're probably pretty good at other sports. So a lot of guys are torn between playing baseball or football or basketball and football. i just mm-hmm. never. I've never heard. Some, I've never heard somebody use that as a reason for choosing football. I love that.
5: Yeah, I was I was I was decent but the fouls just, you know, limited my game and didn't help me to get to the point that I wanted to. So I just made a rational decision that football probably smarter for me. So
0: in Montreal, uh English your first language growing up or French?
5: French. French was
0: so when because uh, i I'm currently learning French and I'm about a year in uh, and uh, I'll tell you that's it's a challenge um but how how long how long did it take you like uh, when, when did you start speaking english and and how long did it take you to become fluent in both languages
5: uh, I'll say uh I lived in an English community, so that makes it kind of easier uh everything was in English football, especially football so i kind of when I started playing football I started with, you know, like the play calls, position and all that. That was all English. So when I figured that out, when I went to high school, we was right next to an English high school. So, like, we would, like, conversate a lot with the kids from the other school. And that just kind of helped. And uh, as time went on, I just, you know, kind of picked up a lot of things and that just became, you know, into it. Well, and
0: so how much – you also decided to go south of the border during high school and went to New York, uh, went to Trinity Pauling for part of your high school career. So when was that? How did you make that decision? Tell us about going the U.S. prep school route.
5: Uh, for me, uh, at that time, uh, you didn't have a lot of kids that went. Uh, the goal was to go Division One. You didn't have a lot of kids that went from the CJEP route because a lot of guys would come out like 21 and that's kind of old to be a freshman in college in the U.S. So the prep school route basically allowed me to, you know, kind of save two years on my eligibility. So when I got down there, I felt like the prep school route, you know, it was extra year, but it felt like, you know, I'd rather give extra year than, you know, lose two and get in at 21. So I felt like that was, you know, the safest one, especially uh, since it was, you know, good academic. So I was able to, you know, get good grades kind of get ingrained in the system already before hitting college and not going from, you know, Canada to U.S. So, like, kind of going to prep school helped me with uh, understanding the system, the American system, and uh, that's that's one of the main decisions why uh, I made that decision. How
0: how much did it help you just regionally? Because where you were, you were kind of in the, the New York, Connecticut area, and you end up going to UConn. How, do, do you think going down and, and being in that area helped you get the scholarship and helped you get to, uh, to
3: UConn?
5: Uh I think at that time it definitely did uh you know just scouts can easier you know it's easier for them to you know go from a thirty minute drive rather than uh kind of take an airplane or go whatever. but I feel like you know with time coming up now with social media and uh and, you know everybody just being everybody getting better, I feel like it's gonna be easier it doesn't really matter where you're going now, but at that time, I definitely felt like you know getting closer to those schools will be easier
0: for their scouts to come see my games well and i I am fascinated like first of all having never been to a u.s college i always love talking to guys about their time playing in the ncaa but uconn's always been uh one of these fascinating schools for especially for a football player because i mean uconn is is known primarily like the first thing you think of is uconn basketball and you were there (laughs) playing football so what's it like being a football player at connecticut
5: uh, I think it's a little tougher, of course, because you said it's a basketball school. But, you know, it's one of those schools that has a lot of potential if you get the right person uh, to direct the school, to direct the program. I think that, you know, it's just one of the programs that can be like, just as good as any other program in the country. But uh, it was kind of tough. But, you know, we, we kind of worked hard. That's, you know, that's what – that's the that's Utah uh, mantra. You work hard, and whatever you get out of it is because, you know, the work you put in. So we kind of just worked hard. Not every game turned in our favor. But I know that, you know, guys left it all on the line and uh that was the great thing about it there's a lot of fun Hergie thanks for doing this this
0: afternoon uh was uh, was very cool to take a look at your journey it's uh it's good that you're here in calgary i'm glad that you're able to get back into the facility and uh, hopefully uh we're watching both throw you some passes here in the next little bit uh thank you very much merci for uh, joining us this afternoon and uh we will talk to you soon
5: thank you for having me guys
0: Herjie Mayala of the Calgary Stampeders joining us on our Stampeders Spotlight today. I, really, like, Maddie. You, you'd know this. That guy, that guy turned into a dominant receiver in the second half of the season. You talked five touchdowns in his last five games. Here's this guy that kind of, the Stamps, because of how deep they were at the position, they brought him along slowly. Took him in the first round in 2019. And then they were, yeah, they kind of eased him into things as the year went along. But by the end of the year, we're talking about this Canadian receiver being as dominant as any American receiver in the league. Like that guy was bonkers tough to stop at the end of last season.
2: Yeah. He came out really strong near the end of the year. I think that the first half of the season, the the coaching staff really tried to implore him to to continue learning and continue learning that playbook, and uh, it really showed as the season went on. This was a guy who, in his first year, they didn't ask him to just learn one single position and just try and kind of shoehorn 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 him into a single spot. They kind of Had him ready to play anywhere that was needed. when the opportunity came, he showed that he was able to play. And I think that game in Montreal was a big one for him. Got to go home. Got to play in front of his family again. He had a great game, a couple of really big catches. And I think it gave him a little bit of confidence, too, going into the back half of the year. The coaching staff was feeling comfortable using him. And uh, we saw it, it worked well for him.
0: I, I, like, he is one of the most exciting players. Like, if you were to say the guy that I'm most excited to watch in 2020, like, I heard you, my Allah, First thing. Uh, yeah. I, I think this guy is going to be an absolute beast. And to have, like, you think of the the great receivers in this league. It is it is an absolute benefit to be able to have one on a national designation. Like, there's just not a lot of them. The, the, the There's a few. And, you know, the riders for the longest time. Had a a great complement of Canadian receivers, and uh, they were able to do the whole Air Canada thing, and that helped them quite a bit. But like for, I think Herji Maiala is on track to being one of the dominant guys in this league. I think that we'll be talking about him the the same way we talk about Brandon Banks and the the rest of the Greg Ellingson, so on and so forth. The 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 great receivers in this league. I, I think he's on track to be that guy. That's uh that's a pretty good ratio buster to have if you're the Stampeders.
2: Yeah, well and Juwan Breskison leaves this year, which I think was a tough pill to swallow, but you watch what Hergie was able to do is the you're wrapped up and in- the pill gets a little bit easier to swallow. They do go out and draft Travell Pinto, another receiver out of UBC in the second round, had a little bit more Canadian depth there, but I'd assume it would be very similar to what we saw this year. as, As far as the progression for Pinto, they've got a couple other Canadian receivers as well. Richardson, Danny, Colton Hunchak keeps coming up. Every time you talk to Bo or another person in that receiver group, Hunchak's name comes up again, another young Canadian receiver. So, They've got some depth there, but he's definitely the most tantalizing. I'd say the most electric and dynamic of that group. Like you mentioned, he he stands toe to toe with a lot of the American receivers in this league. And I think, having a locker beside Eric Rogers and Reggie Bagleton last season certainly didn't help or didn't hurt.
0: Um, so we would be getting set for a game, the first road game for the Stampeders tomorrow. They'd be in Winnipeg taking on the defending Grey cup champions. Uh, they played BC last week in our mock schedule. How does Lucas (laughs) do?
2: Um, well, uh, the CFL simulation, I think Rod Peterson's doing one and, uh, he went off he had like 145 yards or something but uh yeah he probably would have been really good um you know i I assume it would have been probably a career outing for him um apart from that um i I don't know what else to say Uh, probably career game rushing probably would have had like 15 rush yards
0: Kluke had a career game rushing
2: yeah, that's my that's my prediction of a game that happened in the past but didn't happen actually.
0: I I think one target off his hands into uh, opposing uh, opposing DB's hands. That's uh, yeah, he probably juggled
2: call. it like four or five times, like ten yards before it wound up in the safety's hands. Exactly, something like Return that.
0: Return for a touchdown. Snap still won. They're two and zero, oh, but uh, Kluk did not help.
2: Yeah, uh, incredible game from Levi Mitchell again. Yeah, and Herji went off. Yeah. Incredible
0: 840 yards passing for Bo Levi Mitchell. Heard you, my ally. Had
2: four 840. Yeah. Wow, we thought uh 600 plus was big last week.
0: Yeah, Bo's gonna uh, Bo's gonna shatter Doug Flutie's single season passing record.
2: Uh, yeah, two rigged. games in, and he almost has already.
0: So <laughs> he's already at 1500 yards.
5: Uh, <laughs> they've
0: got uh, they've got the bombers tomorrow in our mock schedule. I was gonna, I was gonna say it's gonna something. be a nail biter. I, I don't think it's going to be the way that we're doing it. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say something in French to Hergie at the end, but I am so self-conscious with my. But you French didn't right want to now. embarrass yourself. I, did, I, I I knew exactly what to say. Like I can for, I don't like I can formulate sentences in my head. I was gonna say uh, uh, "c'était agréable, uh, c'était agréable de parler avec toi." Nope, botched
2: it. Nope. Good. Job, but I get didn't. so
0: nervous when I have to <laughs> when I speak it in, to anybody other than to Duolingo. Like it is so nerve wracking. So you wrapped like it up with a, a merci. A mer- merci is very easy i can't screw that one up
2: nailed that one good job pat here's a gold star
0: i have trouble with r's in the middle of words they're so difficult because we don't have that sound in the english language like you got to bring it from the back you got to like roll your tongue and bring it from the back of your mouth it's it's difficult so yeah uh is like i'm butchering it because it's so hard to say for english speakers so
2: I had Duolingo at the beginning of quarantine and then I got Xbox Live and I don't <laughs> think I've opened the app for about three months. What language so, were you uh, practicing? Uh, it was Spanish. It went very well.
0: How how far did you get?
2: Um, about four lessons in.
0: Oh, so you basically flew it
2: Very down. well. <laughs>
0: ah oh, maddie it is wonderful speaking with you i miss you brother i really do uh and uh i hope to i hope to see you in the flesh very very soon
2: sooner than later my friend
0: we're on the uh we're on the right track brother uh you can listen to maddie as part of the jack morning show monday to friday and every thursday as part of our Stampede spotlight great stuff maddie we'll talk to you next week.
2: Thank you, my friend.
0: That's Maddie Rose. That's our Stampeders Spotlight. Thanks to Jean Lefebvre and the Calgary Stampeders for hooking us up with Hergie. Uh, Hergie joined us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Now open for limited dine-in service with all safety precautions in place. Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar, the best pizza, pasta, steaks, and ribs since 1975 at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast. Okay, around the corner, we did our Flames All-Drafted roster earlier. Well, next up focusing in on a recent NHL draft. It was only three years ago, but that doesn't mean we can't still juggle up the order a little bit from the 2017 NHL draft. Did the Vancouver Canucks get the best player, or was it some Calgary kid who should have gone number one overall? Another NHL redraft coming your way next on Pinder and Steinberg. Sportsnet 960, The Fan.
5: The superstars, the bus, the blockbuster trades. Pinder and Steinberg
0: revisit another NHL draft. We have had a lot of fun with these since we started. It's perfect for pandemic radio, redrafting the last 20 or so NHL drafts. And uh, that's what we're doing right now. Welcome back to the program. Pat Steinberg, Logan Gordon, and Riley Pollock, along with you on this Thursday afternoon. And today we are focusing in on the 2017 NHL draft. A far more difficult exercise the more recent you get. The closer we get to today, the harder this thing gets. And I think that we've had some of our most heated debates logo uh, since we've gotten more recent. The 2015 and the 2016 drafts have have caused the biggest disagreements yet. We got into the heated uh, two-on-one gang up of Klein and Logan with their um, Mitch Marner tattoos uh, against me and my Sebastian Aho pajamas. Uh, so we had that on when we did 2015. We, we didn't have as many of, uh, like, they weren't as heated, but we still had some interesting debates about should Kachuk have gone number two or number three in the 2016 draft? That was a, a fascinating one and even more difficult for 2017. So here's what I can tell you. The 2017 draft was held in Chicago, Illinois. It was as significant for some of the trades that happened on draft day than the actual draft case um, and the draft class. Um, and the number one overall pick was thought to be Nolan Patrick. A lot of people thought it was going to be Patrick all year at the Brandon Wheat Kings instead, Nico Heischer sure ends up going number one overall, and now it's time to look back at the twenty-seven draft. But before we do anything else, how difficult? Like this one was extremely difficult for me. Like the the most games that anybody's even played is just over two hundred. How difficult was this for you to go back and redraft?
1: It, it was. It was a, a difficult challenge because you're. There's almost. I mean, really, with the exception of maybe a handful of guys, it's almost all projection. At this point, and what we've seen of the players in in short viewings, and you know some of these guys, you know, being on the west side, we we've only seen a few games, maybe on TV. So you're you're really getting into almost full projection for some of these guys. I think the top end of the draft, you have a pretty good idea of of what guys are or are becoming in the league. But I mean, you're right. There's like Not even 10 guys that have 100 NHL games yet in their careers here. That's, you know, talking a season and a bit max. That's not much to go off of. So it's getting more and more challenging. But there is some discussion to be had about this draft and a few coming up still.
0: Number one overall, Nico Heischer. For me, not number one overall anymore. He still found his way easily into my top five from this draft. But if I were to redraft, knowing all we know and adding some projection into this as well, guys, my number one overall pick is Ilias Pettersson of the Vancouver Canucks. I, I, to me, he's the best player from this draft so far. Um, he plays the position that I love uh, at center, uh, and he's. I just think that he projects to be a consistently elite player at the most important position, the important skating position anyway, in the game. So I, he ended up going number five. So it's not like it's a huge leap. But I have Elias Petterson going from five to one, redrafting the 2017 draft. Which way are you guys going?
1: I, I stuck with uh, Elias Pettersson as well as my number one uh pick. He's just he's been by far the most dominant player out of this draft, two straight years with sixty six points in almost identical amounts of, of games played seventy one last year and probably would have been more this year. I got into sixty eight contests so far. He's just been a dangerous player that you gotta know where he is on the ice at all times. And the the center position did come into the factor for me too. I, I might have had a harder time between him and my second pick, should Pedersen have been a winger, but the fact that he plays the most important position on the ice uh, does what he's you know done the last two years in Vancouver. Uh, he's probably part of the reason that uh, there was such a discussion about them letting go there. Uh, head scout the last few years uh, but that's because he's
6: been so successful and has made such an impact on that Canucks team
0: Riles uh, do you care to dispute or do you have Pedersen going first as well
6: he's my number one as well I um, mean all the points you guys have brought up it's it's hard to pick against him he's going to be an elite scorer and he already has shown it in the past two seasons so yeah no no uh, discrepancy here
0: it's, uh it's fairly like uh, he's, he's already won a Calder trophy He's essentially point per game in his first two, almost two seasons, because we didn't finish. He's this three
1: line. points back of of Heischer in like seventy, eighty less games.
0: And and Heischer was play, Heischer played before Pedersen did. Heischer was playing mm-hmm. right away. Pedersen waited a year. Like, the dudes, and, and remember what he did. Like the expectations Elias Pedersen came into the league with, and specifically. You know they don't have they don't hype things up in Vancouver. They're, they're very it's a very very easy going and sensible group of fans in that city. Uh, but they like the, the hype. Didn't know Andrew
1: Walker was on the show today.
0: Yeah, uh, the the hype train in Vancouver is as like they they hype you up good or they hype you up bad, and it's tough for you to knock those things. Like, had mm-hmm. Elias Petterson not come in and won the Calder Trophy, they probably would have been calling for him to be traded. But he was because of what he did in his last year in Sweden playing with men in the Swedish league. He came in with massive expectations and he met every single one of them. And, and you know, we don't love the Canucks out here and we like to take our shots at the Vancouver Canucks, but they got that one, right? Elias Pettersson's a hell of a hockey player and is going to be their franchise center for a long, long time. Uh, I'm with you logo. Had, had Pettersson been a winger, I think the gap between my number two pick and him would have been a whole lot slimmer and it might have been enough to boost either Heisher or the guy that I had number two ahead of Pedersen, maybe but because he plays center, it didn't. I think you're going the same way as I did for number two but who do you have as your number two pick?
1: Uh, Kale McCarr of the Colorado Avalanche is my number two overall pick. Uh, The impact that he had in that playoff series uh, against the Flames last season, just jumping in and Looking like an all-time NHLer, a guy that could be on your first pairing right away, uh, was unbelievable. He continued it this season. Uh, He wouldn't be my vote for the Calder Trophy, but he would be second on that list, and that's saying something on a, a Colorado team that's very good. He's playing big minutes for them. Uh, he looks like he's going to be an impact guy from day one on, and looks like he's going to be a a stud on that avalanche blue line for a very long time to come. So, and he's a local product, so I like that from him too. So Kale McCarr would be number two in my draft. And,
0: and just before, just before you jump in, Riles, interesting. So you weren't here for our Calder Trophy conversation. You uh you would have gone another way for the call because because Kleiner and I and Riles, I think you too. Um, we all had Makar as our Calder Trophy guy. You would have gone with Qu- Quinn Hughes, hey?
1: Yeah, Quinn Hughes would have been my uh, would have been my pick for uh, for Calder Trophy. Just uh, the I believe he was in more games this season. The offensive impact that uh, Hughes had for a full season. Um, and look, it's not hard for me to. You know, sit there and give Makar lots of, pr- of praise as well. I just thought Hughes had a, an absolutely incredible season, played a little bit more than McCarr did uh, because of McCarr's injury. So uh, I gave the uh, difference to Hughes.
0: Interesting. And, I mean, it was so razor thin, the margin between the two sides. It can go either way. I have no idea who's going to win that award this year, but I digress. No um Quinn Hughes, a hell of a defenseman too. Enough Canucks love. We already let Pedersen yeah, be the this number is, one.
1: Pick. I'm sick of this. Yeah,
0: I'm sick of you. You're the one giving them all the love, you sicker. <laughs> uh, yeah. We all. Riles, do you also have Makar as your
6: number two guy on this draft? That I do. Yeah. Uh, he's an absolute beast. Got to see him play live before, and his ability to see the ice is unmatched of any junior player I've seen. So yeah. And it's transferred to the NHL game. So he's my number two for sure.
0: So, where do we go with number three? This is, I think that that, those were pretty easy for me. It became a little bit more difficult redrafting the next three from the 2017 NHL draft. I went Nico Heischer as my third pick. He's been pretty productive on a not super offensively potent New Jersey team. He's played ever since being drafted, he's a center. I think there's still a high ceiling for him to get to. So I went with Heischer as my number three pick. So really, my top five has three guys from the top five in it. Uh, Pedersen went fifth. McCarr went fourth. Heischer went first that year, and I have Heisher at three. He's where I went for my third overall pick. Uh, I'm curious as to where everybody else went, though.
1: Uh, I differ. This is our first time that uh, we're going to differ in the draft. I went two defensemen. Uh, at 2-3, Miro Heiskanen of the Dallas Stars uh, becomes my third overall pick as we redo 2017. Uh, already an all-star in his second season playing in the NHL. Um, when you come into the league and can form a pairing there uh, you know, and challenge a guy like John Klingberg, on the Dallas defense is one of the best. He's come in, he played 82 games his first season. He's added to his point total this second season. He looks like a top-pairing guy. Uh, I, I've really liked what we've seen from Miro Heiskanen, and he's just – and I think, honestly, as a defenseman coming in, he's still got room to grow. He could be an elite offensive guy. I've already liked what I've seen from him defensively. Uh, and, like I mentioned, for him to be an all-star, I know that that's not the be-all, end-all in this. Uh, he wound up being my third overall pick.
6: Riles, which way do you go? I went Heisken in as well here. I just, I like basically every aspect of his game. He's good in the defensive zone. He can work the power play as well. He uses the body really well. I just, I think he is going to be an elite top pairing defenseman in the league for a long time to come. He's only 20 years old still and we know that defensemen don't really get into that elite category until much later into their 20s, but... Wait till this kid fills out. Yeah, he's already a beast and he's my number three.
0: It was close. I have Haskin in four. Um, but and, and you know what? I think that and probably turns into the Better all round defenseman between him and McCarr, Um, like, and that's not a knock on McCarr because McCarr is going to be out. But like, Kale McCarr's offensive ability is is ridiculous. I don't I don't know if I see, you know, McCarr playing massive shutdown minutes. Like, I think there's a chance he could. I mean, if he if he follows the path of Eric Carlson, then he's going to have no choice but to be in a shutdown role while also being counted on offensively. But I think in terms of just everything, Haskinen might end up being the better or or more well-rounded defenseman between the two of them. I have him at number four. It's it's tough to argue. I just again, I might I might be too guilty of the positional bias. Um, I just think because Heisher's a center, because he has been fairly productive in his time in this league, and I still think there is a significant ceiling for him to get to. Heisher's extremely skilled. Apparently, anybody like if you're really good. And really skilled at a forward, you came through Halifax of the queue. Like everybody <laughs> goes through Halifax. Like we're, we're not just talking about McKinnon and Drouin, but Heisher goes through Halifax and Ehlers went through Halifax. Like everybody goes through Halifax. It's insane. Um, but yeah, I, I just like it was close between Heisher and And Did did Heisher make either of your top fives, guys? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I have them in mind as well. Okay. So it's not like I'm like it's not like you guys are saying I'm completely off the mark by having him at three hey
6: no
1: and honestly he's my four okay like, okay i'm not gonna i'm not gonna beat her on the bush he's my four he's played the most he's come in since being an 18 year old uh on a not very talented team around him uh i'd like to see more production from him offensively it's dropped off since his initial season and that's gonna happen uh, the league's gonna catch on to what you're doing a bit and you're gonna have to adapt your game to it. He's still one of those guys like high and as a young age, he still needs to fill out a bit more. He's only 21. He, if he fills out a bit that center position, I think he can still be a really good first line center for New Jersey down the road. I just like what I've seen out of high and a bit more. And that's what pushed me uh, to putting him three. Like, yeah, it's like, I mean, it's not a big difference for me between three and four. He sure sides in at four for me.
6: Where'd he should go for you, Riles? He's also my four. Um, I really liked the pick back when he was drafted in 2017 of taking him over Patrick. I just thought from you know seeing him in the World Juniors and stuff like that that he was the better pick, and I'm glad they made it. And yeah, his points have gone down a little bit. It seemed like he ran into a bit of injury issues this season, but uh, yeah, I still see a big upside to him. And I mean, taking a number one center, finding another number one center is never easy. So you got to keep him in the top five.
0: Where so then I think like where our our top four is consensus in terms of the players. Uh, we all have Pedersen 1, McCar 2. I've got Haskin in 3. Sorry, I've got Haskin in 4, Heisher 3. You guys go Haskin in 3, Heisher 4. So, and, and again, this is a very difficult exercise because we're only three years removed from this draft, and there's only a couple of seasons, and in Heisher's case, three seasons under the belt. But where did you guys go for number 5? I'll tell you where I went. Um, there's some really interesting players you could have gone with at number 5. But I, I, I don't think that Ke- Kyler Yamamoto gets enough love for what he's done in an albeit very small amount of time. But you talk to anybody in Edmonton, and Yamamoto getting to Edmonton and becoming a full-time player with the Edmonton Oilers transformed their depth. Everybody says it. You talk to players on the team, talk to people covering that team. For so long, it was, okay, yeah, but you got to have McDavid and Dreisaitl on a line together, and then it just drops off from there. What Yamamoto did was allow the Oilers to have two lines and and allowed them to experiment a little bit differently with where they play Nugent Hopkins. And Yamamoto filled them out so they had two legitimate scoring lines where that was such an issue for them before. So and, And Yamamoto's been productive this season. I know that he broke into the NHL maybe a little too early before he got sent down. But Yamamoto, everything that I've seen from him, he looks like a full-time NHLer. So I have him as my number five pick in this draft. He, by the way, went 22nd overall in 2017.
1: Ralph, who you have five?
6: Um, well, I didn't really think about Yamamoto till I saw him on your list, and then I looked it up and I was like, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good pick, but I have someone different. Uh, I went with Nick Suzuki. I think that he had a really good rookie campaign with the Habs this alert. year pardon? (laughs) Habs fan alert. (laughs) 41 points in 71 games. He played the full season with the Habs, really good two-way center, really, really quick in the offensive zone with the puck. It seems like he always knows where to go with it, and I think he's going nowhere but up, but I was kind of talking to Logan before this, and there's probably a good five or six options that you could make a good case for in this five spot. It's really, really close in that five spot, but yeah, I went with Nick Suzuki.
0: Logo, do you have a third one to add, or do you have one of the two that we chose?
1: I do have a third one to add. We're all going to differ on uh, our fifth pick. Mine goes to Robert Thomas uh, of the St. Louis Blues. Uh, At just 20 years old, uh, last season as part of the Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues, he he played in just 70 games, or not just 70 games, excuse me, he played in 70 games Put up 33 points, uh, a bit of an expanded role for him this year now. uh, He's up he his point total to 42 this season. For a young man coming out of the OHL to find a spot on a Stanley Cup winning team, now to start expanding his role and working his way up the depth chart, which is a very good one in St. Louis. Uh, Obviously, as they won the Cup last year, you know they've got depth. They've got guys like Ryan O'Reilly. Uh, Vladimir Tarasenko, they've got great guys on that team. I really like what I've seen out of Robert Thomas. And obviously the organization has too to put such a young player on their roster and have him playing minutes like that. I think he's only going to get better. He's in the perfect spot. To, to start his development and keep growing like that. You're right in the middle of a winning franchise and organization right now. Uh, I really like what I've seen from Robert Thomas, and he jumps from number uh, 20 all the way up to number 5 for me. I, he,
0: I like him a lot. He was uh, he was very much in the mix for me. At first, and and look, I mean it's, it's always hard to project, especially when you're not a scout and you don't see them play uh, in the OHL, the Western League, or the Q all the time, or wherever they're playing, college, USHL, Europe. But at first, everything that I had read about Thomas, everything that I was led to believe, even what I saw from him in his rookie season in the NHL, I was like, well, you know what? This guy's clearly an NHLer and an extremely smart player. He's got a, a very good understanding of the game. Like, he, he thinks it at an extremely high level. Think, like, I, I look at, or I compared Thomas initially to, like, where Michael Backlund was in his early 20s, just in the, the high end way that he reads the game. His two-way ability is off the charts, and so I was like, you know what, this guy, this guy's projected to kind of be St. Louis's next backland type player, Couturier type player. You know, a guy that maybe doesn't put up a ton of points, but man, you can put him in every situation. He'll be productive for you, uh, and he'll be extremely good in the shutdown game. Well, here's a guy with 42 points in 66 games. So he was, you know, over an 82 game, uh, 82 game schedule. I'll do some quick math for you. But, like, we're talking about a guy in just his second NHL season who was on pace for in the 50-point range, and Mm -hmm. we're only talking about 2021. So I think that I undersold Thomas and where his offensive upside was because he clearly has more offensive upside than I thought he was going to have. So he was right on the fringe for me of being in there. I I really like the player. Right now he plays behind Shen and O'Reilly as the number three center. And that's an extremely deep team, but I think Thomas is going to allow the Blues to make some decisions down the road. I know they just signed Shen, but I think that he's going to allow them to to make some decisions down the road in terms of the way that they uh, slot their team and and manage their cap because I do think he's got being a top two center written all over him. So yeah, I, I think Robert Thomas, like, look at what he's done already in two seasons. That's that's a really good player and was not insignificant, not insignificant at all on their run to uh, the postseason. I know that he only came away with six points, but he played a huge role in that Stanley Cup, on that Stanley Cup winning and more of a, uh, a, a, you know, doesn't show up necessarily on the score sheet. Pretty darn important for him. I I like Thomas a lot.
1: Yeah, and I mean, uh, the thing with, with him too was he never put up huge numbers in junior like we we see sometimes in the O oh, when he was on a good London Knights team and you know you always wonder about making that jump directly from junior to the NHL when you didn't see any pro hockey at that level and I, I think that after his first season you kind of thought okay you know maybe a mid-tier offensive guy kind of you know resembles more what his junior numbers were like but this year uh, when you prorate it, even the 42 in 66 really lets me know that his potential to, to score more in the league is up there. And I think you're absolutely right at just 20 years of age, he's really given St. Louis some nice flexibility moving forward.
0: Okay. So when you're talking about a draft three years ago, it is extremely difficult to come up with sleepers because there's going to be some that, that emerge down the road, but there are mm-hmm. a few interesting ones for you. Um, Columbus is in love with Alexander Texier. Uh he was a second round pick of the Blue Jackets in 2017. Has not played a ton to this point, but he was starting to break in this year and was clearly a regular before the injury. Uh so he was a second round pick and he's
1: he's French, I believe, right? Yes. Yeah.
0: Um and a really good player. Like yeah. he's, there there's a lot to like about um the way his um and by French, you mean from France. Yes, he is born yes. in France. Um, so he's, he's a really interesting player, and they were really starting to like the way he was trending before an injury. Uh, Anaheim really likes Maxime Comtois. He's a second-round pick of the Ducks in this year's draft, 50th overall. Drake Batherson is a fourth-round pick. He's gotten a good chunk of NHL time under his belt in Ottawa. So there's a, a few sleeper candidates for you, but it's, it's tough to be picking sleepers from a draft only three years ago.
1: Yeah, we won't know the the true sleepers from this draft uh, for a few years for sure. I think you you're right. The the games played for someone like a Drake Batherson or an Emil Benstrom uh, in Columbus as well as fourth round picks for them to uh, have come up to the NHL is a pretty good percentage-wise against uh, where they were drafted, and that's a good start for them. If they continue it, they'll absolutely fill out that sleeper role. But for now, we're still waiting to see what guys are, period, before we can really call them a, a sleeper or a bust or anything like that. Anybody
0: else you want to nominate for a potential sleeper?
6: I have one. Yeah.
0: Is, uh, it, a, yeah. is it a hab? Yeah.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Kale Flurry in the third round. Uh, He's playing a chunk, chunk of, of games. Overall. Who is that, Riles? Uh, Kale Flurry.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. He,
6: uh, you mean the physical? less
1: good of the two Flurry brothers?
6: Well, the one who just started playing this year, yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> he's got but more. He's got more <laughs> games under his belt than the other one does. not I he? do
6: seem to remember a shift where he ran over uh, Ronaldo and Lucic this year, and he's a good physical defenseman that I think will be a good second pair defenseman for the Habs going forward. He's not going to put up sixty points or anything, but uh, you know, you need that stay-at-home defenseman sometimes. Especially to replace someone like Shea Weber, who's not going to be able to uh, play forever.
1: Yeah, uh, I would probably throw uh, a guy like Pat Steinberg's uh, number one fan club for uh, Sebastian Aho in there. Uh, fifth round pick, 139th overall, the, the to the to the, the New York Sebastian Islanders. <laughs> it's a different. It's a different one. <laughs> it's oh, it's a different one. It's not the one you love so much. No, this is a different one that went in the fifth round. Oh my goodness! I can't believe that. Uh, how could that possibly be? Uh, he's just not as good as, as Mitch Marner. That's too bad.
0: Cale Fleury's got 41 games. Hayden Fleury's got 132. Uh, Hayden's uh, Hayden's an interesting one. He's uh, bounced back and forth between Charlotte and Carolina. Um,
1: after, They've got so many freaking defensemen I know,
0: And that's why it's tough to really tell what Hayden Fleury is because Carolina's so deep. They were so deep regardless, and they went and added Gardner.
1: Yeah, it's like, okay, you got Vatman, Jake Bean and... Like, yeah, flurry, all these guys just—God, like, have fun!
0: It's going to be a little while till you're—you're you're already talking about Pesci and Slavin and Hamilton. That's a hell of a blue line in Carolina. Like ridiculous how good they are. Uh, but I do like Kale Flurry. I think that's a good. Did one they add a
1: defenseman thing. at the deadline? Am I missing that Vatman. too? Vatten, Yeah. Yeah. He hasn't There's played another him. one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, same way. It's too early for sleepers. Too early for busts. But there are a couple of guys that are interesting to me. I. I to, to call Nolan Patrick a bust is unfair because injuries have had a large part to play in what we've mm-hmm. seen. But I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know what Nolan Patrick's going to be, the number two overall pick that year. Uh, went to Philadelphia. And I honestly don't know what Casey Middlestat's going to be. I, Casey Middlestat's the one for me that I am the most interested in to see if he does enter bust territory because I was leery on him to begin with. Small guy. So many points in high school, but how do you really translate him to the next level? He's been, he's, he's, he clearly can play in the NHL. Like he's clearly an extremely gifted hockey player, but is he going to be an impact NHL eighth overall pick to Buffalo that year? Casey Middlestadt's the one that I've got the biggest eye on of potentially being a bust, but it's way too early to tell and probably unfair to, to call him that at this point. Well, it definitely is unfair to call him that at this point. So Patrick and, and Middlestad are the two that I think I've got the, or the most interesting in in that
1: regard. Yeah, you make an interesting uh, point about both of them, and it's interesting because so many of these guys that make that jump right away, it seems like you either hit the ground running, and it just kind of continues on as your progression, that's the level you're going to stay at, or you really kind of struggle that initial little while in there, and you kind of have to work your way back up to it, uh, Nolan Patrick is kind of the exception to that. Obviously, you mentioned the injuries, but as far as you know, a guy like Casey Middlestadt probably should have gone to the A and found out what pro hockey was like uh, from the beginning, and not you know having to struggle in the NHL like he has the last little bit here and now. Uh, go to Rochester and have to fight his way back up. You, we've seen, it's funny because you mentioned that because you see Michael Rasmussen of the Red Wings at, at nine overall. He's there as well. He's got a full NHL season almost under his belt. And the Red Wings did what they would usually do the last little while: is send him back to to Grand Rapids to to develop. It was unusual for them to start a guy at the NHL level. I'm mostly interested in name and the top then that I won't. Uh, won't be on the same list as yours. Is Elias Anderson and the uh, the New York Rangers their situation there? Uh, I believe he's in. He's staying in Sweden right now. He doesn't have any interest in playing for the organization, uh, which is kind of strange. A lot of guys like going to the New York Rangers. There's been the conversation uh, that you've heard from, you know, maybe Oilers fans and Rangers fans that you got, you know, two higher draft picks that are kind of unhappy in their current situation. Could they find a way to? to swap Pujarvi for Anderson and try to get them both a new start. I don't know. Interesting that we're already at that uh, point in, in their careers, that we've got two guys like that that are both trying to look for new starts. But uh, I would be worried if I was the New York Rangers in that situation with, with Anderson doesn't seem to be going so smoothly. It
0: definitely doesn't. Um, I don't know if I would do that if I were the Rangers. I, I feel a little more confident in where Elias Anderson's going than what the uh what things are are pointing towards for uh Jesse Pugliarvi. Anderson 33 points in 66 games uh, sorry 9 points in 66 games 33 penalty minutes um but uh, i just i think Anderson i would be a little bit more positive there i don't know maybe i maybe i'm being unfair to Pugliarvi. i I still like i still think there is upside in Pugliarvi, but maybe it doesn't seem as broken in New York, but maybe that's because I'm not as close to it. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's, that's an interesting one, and that's, that's probably fair as well, Logo, in terms of the breakdown in that one. Finally, the Flames had themselves a decent draft, really too early mm-hmm. to tell, but we're all high on Yusuf Alamaki, who they got at 16th overall. The, the injuries are a concern. There's no doubt about it. There is much a concern. Like, yeah, is there a concern that maybe he... Is injury prone, and that's what we're talking about for the career? Yeah, I guess that is something that, that comes into play, but it's too early, and I think unfair to say, well, clearly this guy's a Band-Aid. It's too too early. There's been some freak things that have happened, so I'm not really ready to go down that road. But more a concern is just that because he's missed so much time in his formative years, that's that's a little bit worrying. He missed so much time in his rookie pro season because of the high ankle sprain. And hasn't had his sophomore season professionally yet because he got hurt in off-season training. So that is the, the biggest worry that I have with Valamaki. But I think we're all pretty high on him. If, if we consider him a prospect, then he's probably the top Flames prospect still. I, I think he's a surefire NHL top four defenseman with a higher ceiling than that. Um, but I think he's like locked in as a top four guy and maybe uh, has, has the opportunity to be a top pairing guy in this league. So. I like the pick of Valamacki. Uh, I, I like Ruzichka as a pick. Don't know, I, at least in terms of being a, a guy that might be able to step in and play some bottom six NHL minutes. So I, I think overall a decent draft for the Calgary Flames.
1: Yeah, still to be determined, and we, we think Valamacki's Going to be an NHLer, so that's a good starting point there when you have the 16th overall pick. I mean, you have to realize that they went, you know, from having the first, uh, their first round pick at 16 to not selecting until the fourth round uh, their next pick, so the, you know, you're kind of taking a while before picks there before you get to Ruzichka. Uh, and then you talk about Fisher, D'Artagnan Jolie, uh, Phillips and, you know, guys like that. You know, the lower the draft pick, obviously, the the lower chance they have of making it to the nhl so you're talking about you know you're really hoping valimaki turns into the nhl or we think he is and you know ruzica's progression's been nice for a fourth round pick we'll see if it continues and can uh make it to the nhl level and the only thing i would add on valimaki is uh i mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were talking about it this might all wind up being a nice blessing in disguise Uh, for the Calgary Flames with the Seattle climate uh, change awareness Green Party peace thing going in Seattle, uh, their expansion draft coming up. This might be a sneaky way for the Calgary Flames to wind up avoiding having to expose a guy like Yusuf Alamaki or uh, getting a little bit more strategic ways to to save a guy if he's not going to be eligible to be exposed by the team. It might not be the worst thing ever to to happen for the Flames here, and if he can continue to be healthy uh, down the road, I think you've got a really nice top four defenseman on your hands. And
0: and unfortunately, this draft, I mean, Rizicka is in the system right now, uh, and also in the system clearly is Valimaki. But the Flames did not uh, sign D'Artagn- or did yeah, did not sign D'Artagnan Jolie, nope. so uh, he's no longer with the organization. Same with Fisher. Um, so I mean, look, the, the, it was not uh, it was not the um, the, the, a banner draft for them. But if, if you can get two NHLers from a draft, then I think it's a successful one because there's just so many, uh, so many unknowns and so much of a crapshoot that goes into this that if you can get, like I, I always consider two from a draft as a success. And I believe that Rzichka can be, has the chance to be an NHLer. And I believe that there's no doubt that Yusuf Alamaki will be an NHLer. Uh, so that's-
1: I, and you know what? Normally, I would agree with you on as far as the two NHLer thing like this. But even just based on the fact they didn't have a second or a third good this point. year, that, that if Alamaki's the yeah. only NHLer that you wind up getting from it, well done.
0: No, that's a good point because they, they have traded away some of those second and third round picks and haven't had them. So, no, that is a, a very valid point on that front. So. There you go. That is our 2017 NHL redraft. A few texts at 960960. Mike writes, uh, Makar 1, Pedersen 2 for me. How many potential point-per-game defensemen are there compared to point-per-game forwards? Makar has the potential to be the most productive defenseman of his generation. Also, hate the Oilers, but I always knew Yamamoto and Robert Thomas were going to be good players. Saw the CHL Prospects game, and they stood out, whereas Nolan Patrick did not at all. So that's from Mike. Uh, this reads, my buddy on the stars said Makar versus Haskinen for the Norris for the next decade. Um, this reads, has Middlestat kind of had a Cody Hodgson beginning? I don't know. I, I don't know if it's quite there yet. Um, I mean, Hodgson did not have a poor start to his career. It just there were so many other things that, that kind of went around Hodgson and then it, it dropped off from there, then the trade. I still think Middlestad's got a boatload of talent, but I am he is the guy that if you were to say, Who's the guy you got your biggest eye on who could be a bust? I, I would say Casey Middlestadt from uh, 2017. This reads, wait, there are two Sebastian Ajos? Mm-hmm. That is true. That is absolutely true. Um, the New York Islanders have a Sebastian Ajo. They picked in the fifth round of 2017. And the Carolina Hurricanes have the good Sebastian Ajo. He was picked in the second round of 2015. And finally, uh, this reads, really starting to like Robbie Pollock. He has a sneaky, dry sense of humor.
1: I like Robbie way more than I like Riley. Me too.
0: He then corrected it to Riley, but from now on you will be known as Robbie Pollock because
6: Yeah, I'm sorry. This worse. just happened. It's the way it's the way it goes. I feel like there's a lot worse nicknames that people could give me than Robbie, so let's go with it. I prefer my nickname for you. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it's more accurate. The horse is what we call
0: Riley Pollock around these uh, around these places.
1: Big teeth.
0: Big uh, Big work ethic. That's that's why.
6: Oh, oh yeah. thanks. Let go about it.
0: Uh, there you go. Really enjoyed that. Your 2017 NHL redraft. Uh, man, 2018 is going to be difficult. I don't even know if we bother doing 2019, but uh, I'm not here next week. So if you guys want to tackle 2018, be my guest because that terrifies me. So you guys do 2018 <laughs> and 2019. I don't want to do it. Uh, okay, let's uh, take a break. We're underway. Happy Thursday. He's Logan Gordon. He's Riley Pollock. My name is Pat Steinberg. We just spent 40 minutes on the 2017 NHL Draft. Well done, gentlemen. Well done indeed. This is Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, the fan. Be tuned in on Sunday, 4 30 p.m. Calgary time on Sportsnet 1 for a uh, brand new series that. I'm excited for. I'm excited for the series. I'm excited for the person who's hosting it and who's bringing it to you. I think it's going to be really cool. And I am absolutely stoked for the first two guests on the program as well. So, debuting Sunday on Sportsnet 1 and Sportsnet Now, and then available online and on Sportsnet's YouTube Sunday at 4.30. It's called Top of Her Game, hosted by the one and only Tara Sloan, who joins us on the program. Uh, Tara, of course. I I still consider Tara the host of breakfast television, uh, but also <laughs> hometown hockey and other things. Uh, hi,
7: Tara. How are you? Hey, Todd. I'm uh, I'm hanging in there. I think I'm doing okay. We're uh, we're all healthy. We're all uh, you know well fed and well watered. So we're doing okay. I Hope you're good too.
0: I-, I am, and I'm glad to hear that you and the fan are good. So that's very good to hear. Um, tell us. I-, I I like when I when I saw you put this on Twitter. I was like. That's that's a really cool idea. And then when I saw who your first two guests are, I was like, that's even cooler because I'm a bit of a wrestling nerd myself. More on that in a second. But tell us about Top of Her Game, which is debuting on Sunday.
7: Well, you know, I think it's just, the, this is the result of really seeing uh, some space on the media landscape, a gap, really. Um, there just isn't a show like this. There isn't a show that, that focuses on female leaders in the world of sport. And we all know that there are plenty of stories to be told. We just have to carve out the space to tell them. And so luckily, you know, I mean, I guess maybe it's a result of, of pro sports being on pause, but there's there's room for it right now. Um, and a lot of us have been working hard to, to get these stories up and running. So, yeah, it's, it's an interview show primarily, um, which I'm hosting, but we're, we are going to try to bring in as many other voices as possible. You know, a lot of the great hosts on Sportsnet, and we have a lot of uh, fantastic features that have been produced for International Women's Day and will continue to be produced. So um, we're going to try to cram in as much content as possible, but sort of the, the main event, no pun really intended, is, is the interview. And so this week is Stephanie McMahon and Charlotte Flair. And, you know, I did not know too much about wrestling, but of course I knew who they were and they did not disappoint. They're incredible women.
0: Give us a little bit of a preview of of the the first show that we're going to see on Sunday and and without without giving too much away, tell us a little bit about what you took away from chatting with Charlotte and Stephanie.
7: Well, you know, it's it's about their stories and about their journey more than, you know, digging into the specifics of their their sports accolades. So, of course, we know that Charlotte is poised to probably be the best female wrestler ever. Um, And Stephanie herself uh, is a champion and, and a heel, um, but you know, they've both had really interesting lives. Both, well, Charlotte is second generation wrestling royalty. Stephanie is a fourth generation, you know, in wrestling family. So, um, you know, how they kind of came to be, at the top of of their games and neither of them, you know, Stephanie is no longer Vince McMahon's daughter. Vince is Stephanie's dad and it's the same with Charlotte. So uh, it's really, you know, about their own personal power, um, the drive they feel to further women and women's empowerment in general, but women in sport. And for Stephanie, you know, she's the chief brand officer of the WWE and they've been very, very intentional about how they have positioned their wrestlers. They, they changed the title from divas to superstars to put them on, on par with the male wrestlers. And they're part of WrestleMania now. And um, they are leveling the playing field. So it, they're super interesting people. So is
0: this, like, was, was this something that, that was your brainchild and something that you pitched? Uh, was, it, was it something that, that came about through collaboration? I'm, I'm curious as to the, the genesis
7: of coming up with the show. This was the result of a, a number of us at sportsnet thinking that there needed to be something um so you know we knew that there needed to be some female focused content, and I think anybody who has watched uh Rogers Hockey knows that you know being representative has always been part of not a mandate but what what we believe in um And so, you know, I'm working on this with an amazing team that includes Allison Redmond, who's the executive producer of Roger Sumtown Hockey. So we all kind of have the same ethos. Um, And so, yeah, we kind of, you know, we brainstormed and tried to figure out what would work. And our hope is really that, you know, this will act as a, a flagship program, but that it will spawn interest and, again, you know, more space on the sports media landscape for women women in sport and, and stories about all kinds of people.
0: Chatting with Tara Sloan of Sportsnet, host of Hometown Hockey, and the host of Top of Her Game, which debuts on Sunday, 4.30, on Sportsnet 1. You can watch it every Sunday at 4.30 Calgary time. Uh, As uh, this week, it is going to be Stephanie McMahon and Charlotte Flair as the featured guests and different conversations elevating women in sports uh, every single week at 4.30. So I'm, I'm curious, Tara, because... Look, I, I've, I've always enjoyed these conversations with you. I mean, I, I go back to even having these conversations when, remember when we were doing stuff at the Olympics? We were doing those shows. <laughs> oh, yeah. That seems, especially now, that seems like 30 years ago. But um, how how do you balance the steps that we've taken in elevating the conversation of women's sports and women in sports? And balance it with the steps that you know we still need to take and and as as broadcasters as sports networks, just the overall conversations how how do
7: you find that balance? Well, you know the the truth is uh, it's pretty frustrating, <laughs> you know I mean, I guess if we kind of take if we if we look back and we we can pat ourselves on the back and say, "My goodness, how far we've come um, but the truth is when you look at some of the statistics and and some of them. You know are really upsetting in terms of um girls and women staying in sport and and the representation across media and, and stuff like that it's it's not improving uh in the way that I think all of us would would like to see on the other hand, there is starting to be just a, an acknowledgement that um representation is good business you know when you look at, at the demographics of of a fan base like the n h l people of color and women are the fastest growing demographics. So you want people to be able to see people that look like them. Um, But, you know, for me, I have an almost 11 year old daughter and it's just become kind of part of my life's mission. I want her to, to see what she can be. I want, I want her, you know, when I grew up, I didn't know of any any female sportscasters. And I just, you know, I didn't have the role models that I, I should have. And, I want her to have all of that, and I want young girls and boys to grow up knowing how awesome women are.
0: It's because th- yesterday. So, for instance, let me let me bounce something off you. So, yesterday, I would. I, I actually am fascinated as to what you would what you would say and the advice you'd give me. So, so yesterday, Kim Saint Pierre goes into the Hockey Hall of Fame. I, I thought Jen mm-hmm. Botterill should have gone in as well. That's I'll, mm-hmm. I'll ask you about that in a second. But yeah. so, Kim Saint Pierre goes in yesterday, and and I. When we were talking about it, I I, I tried not to, like, make it, I, I tried not to say things like, well, she's one of the most accomplished women's hockey players of all time. I just, like, right. for, for me, I take a look at somebody with three Olympic gold medals and all the world championship gold medals she has and one of the most decorated and accomplished Canadian goaltenders, period. And And I really wanted to underline that. But at the same time, there's also I believe an importance in in making sure that we elevate and and pinpoint and and talk about specifically the the accomplishments of women in sport because as you talked about it is as underrepresented as it is. So I, I right. I'm how, what what's the best way? What's the best advice you can give to try to find that balance of of looking at the accomplishments and, and making sure that you talk about them as equal by, but also elevating the conversation and,
7: and making sure you shine the spotlight where you should. Oh boy. I feel like I'm going to get myself in trouble. I mean, you know, yes. I mean, there's no question. Kim seems belongs in there and there are a lot of other women that belong in there. And in particular, I mean, I, I think Jen Botterell is, is a lock probably for next year. Um, but there are, there are builders. There are, there are no female builders in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And, I mean, <laughs> the women who helped pave the way um, for women to have a recognized world championship and to be in the Olympics at all, um, they deserve that kind of recognition. Women like Fran Ryder and Hazel McCallion. So those are the ones that blow my mind. Um, And I just I'm not sure if it's just a general lack of education, because I know that these stories are not as well known. And and maybe, um, you know, the people making these decisions are not as well versed on on the importance of these figures. Uh, I know that there are are spots for two women a year and that doesn't tend to happen beyond year one. And um, it's disappointing to me. It's disappointing. So, you know, I, I don't want to knock anybody in particular, um, but I, I wish that they felt some sort of ethical <laughs> compulsion to, to look at this in a different way. Um, but that's just not where we're at right now. But yeah. I mean, gosh, at least if we, at least if we get one woman a year, at least do that, you know, because there have been years since. Um, since Cami Granado and Angela James were inducted in 2010, but there were not. Like the next woman was 2013 after that. So um, let's at least get one a year. But uh, yeah, let's uh, look at the builders. My goodness, they had to work their butts off to, to get women uh, women's hockey recognized.
0: I, I would have put, like, I thought Botterell and, and St. Pierre could have easily gone in the same year this year. Um, Absolutely. Because, I mean, and Jen Battle, you're right. She's a lock. She will go in at some point, but. Could have easily put her in at the same time with St. Pierre. Um, okay. it's, uh, it's, it's a really, I, I love having these conversations with you. I'm looking forward to the show. Uh, one more time, just give us a, a little bit of a, a plug and, uh, a little bit of a, a reader's digest on what we're talking about with top of her game, which debuts Sunday on sports net one.
7: Well, this is conversations about, uh, women in sport with women in sports and women's sports. Um, and some of these are going to be women that, that you know, like Stephanie McMahon and Charlotte Flair, who are kicking it off. And some of them are going to be women who you're meeting for the first time, maybe, like Mattia Olin, who is Canada's best surfer. She's 16 years old and she lives in Tofino. And so, you know, we're we're not leaving anybody off of our guest list. Um, we're trying to be very representative and we have lots and lots of guests booked and, and we think it's going to be a very, very inspiring series. I mean, everybody has incredible stories. Um, a lot of people that we're talking to are also just, they're very driven to, to further the, the movement and the cause and um, put themselves out there as role models. So it, it's really exciting. And I'm, I'm super grateful to have the platform on Sportsnet and the support to be able to do
0: this. Are you uh, like, are you chomping at the bit to get back and, be doing hometown hockey again. It's been, I know you were near the end of the season, but yeah. How, how weird has this been (laughs)
7: for you? We were three stops away. So, you know, of course it's disappointing. We didn't get to uh, North Vancouver. We didn't get to Campbell river and we didn't get to wrap it up in Edmonton. Um, yeah, I mean, we all had the rug pulled out, right? I mean, I can't, I'm, I certainly, it's not a lone experience, but yeah, it's hard, you know, you, I mean, for us, communities are, are really excited that we're coming and really excited that we are going to tell their stories. And so um, uh, that's what I'm looking forward to the most and, and who knows when the next regular season will resume. So it could be quite a break, but I know that Ron and I are both really hoping that, you know, it, it may look different uh, in the next season, but we're hoping we will have a Rogers hometown hockey.
0: Great to talk with you, Tara. Looking forward to Sunday. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing the shows that you roll out. Top of her game, Sundays, 4 30 on Sportsnet One. First episode is this Sunday. Thanks for doing this and be well, be safe. We'll talk to you soon.
7: Thanks, Pat. So much appreciated.
0: It's Tara Sloan of Sportsnet, the host of Hometown Hockey and now the host of Top of Her Game. You can watch it on Sportsnet uh, starting this Sunday at 4.30. If you miss it, uh, it'll be uh, available on Sportsnet.ca and also available on Sportsnet's YouTube channel. Tara joining us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, now open for limited dine-in service with all safety precautions in place. Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar, the best pizza, pasta, steaks, and ribs since 1975 at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast.